Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, to Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Sarama, as ever joined by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser. And uh, we're back for another sort of mishmashy episode. So last uh, last time we were celebrating the 1992 referendum and the fact that it was a positive step in the road to making the South Africa that both of us grew up in, uh, which we were very thankful for. But uh, this week I we hope, should probably... I feel like I might have been a little bit too jubilant. <laughs> oh, come on, dude. Why uh, were you too jubilant? <laughs> oh, just because I definitely cracked open the whiskey on ice uh, at some point I, during to, what turned out if, to be quite a long... Long, 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 term, long, term, long term listeners of the show know that that was certainly not the most jubilant that either of us has been. No, that's true. <laughs> uh you you were yeah you seem to have injured yourself yet again you were, i you have my yeah i need a oh man my foot i can't like i mean this weird thing where i've i've broken my left kneecap a couple of times and playing volleyball while jubilant mm, no okay so the last time was volleyball the, the, the first two times were rugby <laughs> so it's 33 percent of the time 33, but then my I, I injured my right foot. I think I might have broken something in my right foot by sort of overcompensating and doing too much with my right foot to sort of spare my left thigh. And um, and then something sort of sounded like it snapped about a month ago, and I still can't um, raise my oh, heel more than a centimeter or two off the ground. So it's like I can easily stand on my left toe, you know, like, you know, just left leg, raise up onto my toes, carry my body weight. But my on my right side, like I, I it's, it's almost like I can't do anything. There's a great restriction of movement. So I'm going to an orthopedic surgeon. So why, surgeon why, 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 why did I bring this up? Because it's my uh, public service announcement that exercise is bad for you. Uh, Proven. Fact. <laughs> it's like I heard, I, I don't know whether it's true, but I heard long ago that apparently uh, uh, Donald Trump believes that exercise is bad for you because people are like batteries and you have a certain amount of energy in you and when you exercise you're expending more than you need to and you know what i'm totally team trump for this one <laughs> <laughs> terrible 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 uh it's wrong what is true though i think also i'm not sure is uh that oxygen is the most carcinogenic uh sort of element so like nothing like lots of things give you cancer, but nothing gives you as much cancer as oxygen. And so when you exercise, <laughs> what you end up doing when you're panting is taking Yeah, there you go. Oxygen. There you go. This is the science. You're hearing science from the horse's <laughs> mouth right here. Um so I think that before, I think there are also very healthy things about exercising, which is partly why I do it so much. <laughs> yeah, you see why we're going to this is this is gonna get us uh, kicked off of uh the, the 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 podcast platforms for misinformation. Uh, we're gonna get deep platform from Spotify. Hopefully, for... hopefully we're two smaller fish, so we'll slip through the. Spreading, we're spreading there. big couch potato. <laughs> <laughs> um. So one of the things we wanted to talk about today. Oh, sorry. Just before we start, uh, just before we start on our main topics, I do also want to mention my favorite story of I think the year so far. Uh, and we talked about this, this on the, is Daily the best. Episode. This is the best opening yeah. story. We talked about some of the daily friend Prasa, right? It's been a mess for a long time. And foremost among his critics is Fakila Mbalula, our transport minister, 
who keeps talking about Prasa as though he has very little to do with it. And it's like, I get that there's a board and there's factions and all sorts of things there. But dude, you've been the Minister of Transport forever. Okay, you can't just keep talking about... Anyway, so the most recent discovery is that Prasa has 3,000 employees who do not exist. Ghost employees. <laughs> so there's a great thumbnail for the for the Daily Friend episode uh, of of Fikilem Balula looking kind of bemused, and it says three thousand ghost employees, and then there are little emojis of ghosts kind of floating, flying around his head. Yes, <laughs> really excellent work by our colleague Alex on that one. Um, I did just message him to congratulate him. But anyway, I mean, it's like oh, and the best part of the story for me is how they figured out. How, who are the ghost employees, which is that they uh, they drew up a list of 3,000 who they thought were probably not real, and they just didn't pay them since December. And then they waited to see if anyone complained. And no one has, so they, they, they're pretty <laughs> sure that it's fake. <laughs> I mean, what I love about this is that it's an excuse to remind everyone about um, the first great uh, sort of Russian comedy which was written by Nikolai Gorgel, who was a Ukrainian who loved the Russian language and wrote in Russian, in Russian all his life um, and, and wrote a lot of Ukrainian folk tales in the early 1800s. This is sort of just as Russia, as Russian is developing as a literary language um, after, the, after the nobility stopped speaking French and starts speaking Russian like the peasants around them. And... The Gorgel's great novel is called Dead Souls, because and it's about a guy who uh, is kind of a an aristocrat who's fallen on hard times, or is he a peasant who's sort of very ambitious? I can't quite remember. The point is, he doesn't have quite enough money to marry the beautiful uh, woman of his dreams, who is pretty noble. So what he does is he needs to. He, he's got a great business idea, so he needs to borrow some money. But in order to borrow some money, he needs to have collateral. And the way that Russian slavery worked um, until about 1856, I think it was, is that they were called serfs and not slaves. But they were slaves. It's just that they you couldn't move them. They were indexed to the land, right? right. So, if you, so instead if of you, belonging yeah, to an owner, they belong to the land in a sense. Yes, and then the land belongs to the owner. So they still belong to an owner, but the point is you can't sell the slaves. You can only sell the land. So you can't move them around. So it does have this advantage that you can't really split families uh, by selling uh, you know, the husband down the river or something or the, or the mother up the river. Um, but it is, uh, it is uh, still the case that you can split families. In other ways, by just you know, saying, hey, I've got a very large estate and you have to live here and she has to live there and I'm going to sleep with your daughter, uh, which happened a hell of a lot. Um, Anyway, the point is that uh, in order to get the bank convinced that he's really rich, he needs to buy these. He needs to have a lot of souls. You, you kind of measure the value of the land because there's so much land in Russia by how many souls you have on the land. And he figures out a sneaky way to get people to give him the names of their dead souls. Because in the registry... The registry is not being well kept. It's going to show up as these are serfs, but it's not going to show up what land they're apportioned to. And so he can sort of, if he can gather a thousand dead souls, he can borrow oh. at a cheap enough rate 
that he himself can become like a local little banker in this area. Yeah, it's like it's like forging your um uh, your income statements from your employer, your payslip. Yes. He's forging a huge payslip, you know, like a, a $10 million payslip to 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 be able to borrow enough money to have a wedding. <laughs> because he are you, and he's are you because, thinking of ideas, Gabriel, for your upcoming wedding. Exactly, dude. And his and the thing is his business plan is coming back to me. His business plan is not particularly good and he doesn't particularly mind. It's one it's sort of one of the twists in the third act. It's like it's like, dude, once I marry into this super rich family, it's gonna be fine. <laughs> That's what that's my business plan, as it turns out. Anyway, anyway, so he goes around and he gathers these dead souls, um, and sometimes he does it with sort of nationalist arguments, and sometimes with communist arguments, sometimes with anarchist arguments, sometimes with sort of terrorist arguments. Um, it's amazing how many arguments there are, and this and this presages the next great Russian comedy, my, the, my favorite Russian theatrical comedy, which is called The Suicide, which is where a guy. Um, is so miserable. Oh, yes, famous it, Russian theatrical comedy called The Suicide. <laughs> Dude, it starts out, he's like sleeping with his wife and he's like, can't stand her. And she's always shouting at him. And he really just wants a biscuit. And he's like hidden, like they only have enough money for one biscuit. And because he works harder than her, he thinks he deserves the biscuit. So he goes like crawling out of bed into the kitchen looking for the biscuit and like he can't find the biscuit and he's not sure if a rat ate the biscuit or maybe his wife found the biscuit and ate the biscuit and his wife finds him and he like runs away into the toilet and she's like shouting at him and it's humiliating and the biscuit oh my god it's so depressing that he's just like you know what my whole life is completely a waste of energy and it's very very sad but it's 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 like the more energy i put into it the the worse things get so i should just kill myself so he tries to kill himself because his wife hates him, and honestly, he hates her, and there's nothing else to live for excepting the biscuit, but she ate it. The rope is is like crappy Soviet rope. So, oh. <laughs> so it can't support his weight. <laughs> only the Russians, only the Russians could write a comedy where the comedy is that the rope is so bad that it breaks. This is act one. Right, this is the intro. <laughs> so, so, the, so he can't kill himself, and also because it's the Soviet Union, there's one toilet for like for like the whole floor of like 27 families in the apartment building. So it quickly like some someone figures out that he's in the toilet and he's kind of blocking the toilet, and then they wake up other people up, and like the whole floor quickly discovers that he's trying to kill himself, and they're all hosing themselves at how hilarious it is that this guy is such a loser and they hear the story because his wife's been shining why did he kill himself because there was because his wife ate the last biscuit oh it turns out he was actually hiding the biscuit from his wife oh he's cheating on his wife no 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 not like in a sexy way no one would want to sleep with him literally we're talking about a biscuit <laughs> what a loser he should kill himself oh but he doesn't even know how to kill himself <laughs> dude it's it's so sadistic. And then the next day, someone comes over to him and is like, dude, I'm so sad. I heard you want to kill yourself. Um, and like I just and it sounded like it was about this biscuit thing. And they're like, Yeah, that that, that is actually true. And he's like, Well, that is that is a waste. So I mean, like, you should definitely kill yourself because clearly your life has just gotten to that point. 
But why don't you kill yourself for a good cause? Like kill yourself for the anarchist movement. And then someone else is, hears about this and he's like, no, 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 you should kill yourself for the communist movement. And someone else is like, no, 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 you should kill yourself for this, you know, kill yourself for the Tsar and, and, and resurrecting his glory. And, uh, and by the end of the day, he is just in the center of the largest party that he's, that he's ever seen. So many people have come from near and far to convince him that they should kill himself. That he should kill himself with their cause, um, and 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 I think this play too was written by a Ukrainian Russian. Anyway, so just a little cultural flavor connecting to the old uh, three thousand dead souls at Prasa. Um, maybe one day someone will write a poem or a play about about Fikilem Balula's terrible ordeal, uh, shadow boxing the the ruling party. He, like Ramaphosa, is the leader of the opposition. Dude, this Not is. Minister, he is the shadow minister of transport. That's why he's so angry about this. It's not his fault. The actual minister has caused this problem, uh, and, <laughs> and the shadow so, minister is going to find the ghost employees. And yeah, yeah, he's, 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 he's <laughs> he should start. I, I actually really hope that he's going to start calling himself Minister Ghostbuster because that that would be fantastic. <laughs> anyway, because you know he he was the source of this information about the ghosts. By the way, it wasn't. Uh, it was uh, came out of Parliament. Someone asked a question. I think the DA may have asked him a question, and then he went on a whole rant about how terrible Prasa was. Uh, yeah, you know. Okay, so here's a tangent, and you're much more plugged into the uh, cultural art space than I am. So tell me if I'm wrong. The civil service does not get nearly enough flack in South Africa's. Like I really do feel like someone should write a play about yeah. Fakila and Baluda. The Great Trials of Fakila and Balula, instead of another miserable play about race and how terrible oh, God, everything is. No, can't we have another play about apartheid? I don't think oh, yes. it's just one yes. more. Just no, one because, more. because no South African has ever heard about that. We should, oh, we should, we should definitely talk about that instead of... We need you know, another play about apartheid. Things. Dude, you could, have, you, could, you could make so much really good darkly comedic content about how messed up our civil service is, about how everyone is just on the take, about how everyone is just pretending to do their job. It would be like South Africa should be filled with all of those jokes from the Soviet Union, uh, you know, about yes. they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work because that is how so much of our civil service works. <laughs> Dude, it is. Look, I got to say, Paul Ngubani Khretboom, Whose, whose names just tell a whole story, hey? Paul Gubane Grootboom. There we go. There's the best South African playwright alive. Um, one of his plays um, was about um, basically the police uh, being so useless. Like they kind of torture a guy by trying to light his testicles on fire, but they turn out to be really scared when the real bad guys come. And the sort of piece de resistance scene is when a, is when a vigilante shows up and Galagata plays. And this guy sort of. So that's the song of the 2000s? Galagata? Yeah. Yeah. He comes out with like a machete and his like leather boots with no laces, like the tongue flapping out, and he's like loose pants. And he's just like, dude, he's like dreadlocks were falling out of this actor's hair. He'd like really gone full method, like living under a bridge for a month beforehand and had like learned how to ward off. Uh, Neope addicts and stuff like that, you know, and and he had like a 
he did something. He had like a rubber band or something that he tied around his lips so that he looked like he had a super bee stung kind of vibe. Anyway, that was that was sort of about the the, the amazing uselessness of the police and and how terrifying it is to live in sort of black townships. Um, right. Which but even there, I feel, story. I feel like and, that's no, not quite the what I'm one, going for because it's too. It's still too. It's still too, too much like, violence. In, it's too much violence. I agree. Then the, then he had one before I think called Cards which was sort of about a brothel populated by a lot of bureaucrats, which was pretty Soviet, i got to say. Um, <laughs> and then the his latest one that I saw was, but it was about headline politics. It was kind of like a thinly veiled story about Malema and, and Zuma. And it had this amazing scene where um, the, the Malema character ends up giving a speech. This was in the State Theater in Pretoria. And it was almost completely empty. But there were like half a dozen like little Afrikaans blondes, uh, poppies uh, in the second row. Dude, this speech. And they have like some of the EFF guys come into the audience while he's making the speech about kind of like race solidarity and the evils of apartheid and the betrayal of Mandela as a sellout and whatever. And it's just so well scripted. It's kind of you've been walked into you've been painted into such an emotional corner. That by the time this comes, you're so angry with Jacob Zuma. You're so angry with the sort of collapse of the civil service, with the with the sort of heartbreaking little vignettes of of people dying because the road because of the pothole kind of a thing. That you really just want a strong man to come and say, "I've got a clear path forward." And those little puppies were they were getting <laughs> they were sort of going along with it. They were like, you know. Um, they were really they were really swept up in the moment. It was a beautiful thing to see that power of theater. And then and then when the play was over, they were like, wait, why were we cheering that on? <laughs> <laughs> no, that is good theater. <laughs> it, was, it was great, but I totally agree with you. There's not enough of that like the the, the comedy Sigismund uh, Kruzhinovsky is another sort of uh Ukrainian Russian writer, maybe my favorite. He said that that tragedy is like chess where you know there are a few movements that seem to be into clear space and then quickly it becomes the case and that then, yeah, in order to move you have to take something off the table hmm. you never go forward without deleting something else and he said comedy is like is like um is like uh, this a version of chess where none of the pieces can move you can kind of wiggle them like there's a piece on a thing that's like stuck like a rubber ducky to the square and you can jiggle it like a nipple or something, but it's never actually going to move. That's comedy is somehow being stuck in place. And then the, the grand comedic moment, um, the grand tragic moment is that you lose. The grand comedic moment is that you castle, which is when two pieces in order for one piece to move, two pieces have to move and they sort of have to hop over each other with a logic that would make absolutely no sense. Uh, according to the rest of the rules of the game, uh, but somehow makes perfect sense once you've seen it, um, dude. So there's not enough castling. There's too much tragedy. You know, I'm trying to think about co comedic things that I've seen that exactly make that point, that, that follow that logic, and it's always sunny in Philadelphia is the perfect example of that because the central conceit of the show is that all of the characters are awful, rip, uh, horrible human beings who deserve all the all the terrible things that go wrong in their lives and never learn from their mistakes ever, ever, ever. They're all stuck in place and they don't move. The only character who's had any change 
is the one who went from being a homophobe to a gay man, <laughs> which is like castling. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> and it's funny. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, so we let's... need that. We need the Russian. We need the South African bureaucracy, comedy, tragic. Yeah, Incompetence is of... funny. And all yeah. South Africans know it, and we all have every single South African, from someone living in a shack to someone living in Santa City, knows what to experience competence is like. Mm. And it's it's delightful, and it's unifying, and also it would maybe center the public mind on one of the real problems that doesn't get enough flack, which is the damn civil service. <laughs> oh my word, dude! Three thousand. Oh, that's delicious amount of. It's twenty percent, eh? approximately, of of. So if you're wondering why the trains aren't running on time, it's probably because the person who is supposed to show up to that shift didn't, doesn't exist. Well, did I also like the line, Barnum Tomboti, um, the Sunday Times columnist and my former sort of boss slash chairperson when I was the George Palmer financial journalist person. Um, his column on Sunday, he said, you know, uh, we our problem is we don't make the trains... We, the, uh, ANC government's pretty terrible. They don't make the trains run on time. You know, the train tracks don't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is unfortunately Which, true. <laughs> I thought it is. You know, there's there's a kind of spectrum for you, right? On the one hand, you've got like the you've got I you've got the Germans, okay, for making the trains run on time in the worst possible way, okay, and on the <laughs> On the other extreme, you've got no train tracks. And and one of them is worse than the other one. But really, you want to not be on either extreme. You, you just want yes. to be yes. in that happy middle space where there are train tracks and there are trains. And sometimes they're five minutes late and sometimes <laughs> they're on time. You, you, do you know? Do you know? On that point, this is a, one of the sort of slightly creepy and also slightly admirable things about Japan, that if you do not speak Japanese or are able to read any Japanese writing, if you learn the order of the stops in a Japanese train station, you can know exactly exactly which one you're at by just knowing what time it is, because the trains are so on time that they will be at exactly this station at exactly this time. So you just you just. <laughs> You just Google like what time is the stop, and then yes. you get off according to your watch. Yes, exactly. Uh, I oh, think Japan's good, rule good. definition of a late train is something like thirty seconds late, and something like ninety-five percent of their trains are not late. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's dude. an interesting country, Japan. Um, I, I, I don't think it's very replicable. I. Kind of my favorite novel by Murakami is The Colorless Tsukuru, which is a which is a it's just like really long, like seven hundred page novel about a about a guy who sort of oversees and um, Japanese train stations, and if he's really lucky, gets to design a new one. But mainly, just you know, thinks about if we're going to add a few bathrooms or a new stairwell or something, where is it going to go? Right. And colorless Tsukuru, it's it's like that's that's his character. He's this like very bland dude who really like a good train station just wants to fade into the background and be a conduit 
for all of the interesting stuff without slowing anything down. But there was this terrible story about like, and then I watched it on YouTube. Like a lot of those Japanese um, uh, sort of escalators, as you if if you drop your shoe, or you drop your handbag, or anything comes off, like you'll you'll have to wait six hours to get it back, right. because there's just such thick traffic that just never stops. Because yes. it's so efficiently timed that once the one train has come off, and just as as the platform is clearing, the next ones come on, so that there's a constant and thick stream of human beings that cannot be turned around. Um, so there are these terrible <laughs> stories of like school children dropping their suitcases and then like, and then they're just gone forever because they, 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 they've got to go to school. They can't come back. Yeah, By the time yeah. they come back, it's been crushed. It's gone. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, one more point on the dangers of having too efficient of a train system. <laughs> Which is a statement I'm not sure I have to expect. It's not, it's not a danger for us. It's, it's, it's just, <laughs> no, no, no. Just, we're, we're empathizing because that's important. <laughs> the people who uh, have a very different existence. They've got problems. So with, yeah. in, 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 what was it, the 90s, early 2000s, there was this weird doomsday cult. They carried out a whole bunch of terrorist attacks in Japan. They, they started off as like some kind of new age help, health group, and then it, they turned into a terrifying doomsday cult that wanted to start a nuclear war and then survive it in a bunker and emerge to become the new sort of ruling class of the world. Anyway, so to try and start this nuclear war, they started developing chemical weapons in some of the apartment blocks that they owned. And eventually uh, they deployed them on trains in Tokyo. They, they went and, and, and placed them there. But because the Japanese system is so efficient when they put so they, they put like a canister or something that started spraying i can't remember what it was it was like sarin gas or something you know some yeah. really horrible thing awful, awful, people yeah. collapsed the japanese officials came onto the train removed the ill people and immediately sent it back on its way just assuming that they had had like a heart attack or fainted or something and so it went on for several train stations like knocking out and killing people along the way because the train system was so efficient that it didn't that want it to was... make it anything late. And so people were getting dragged <laughs> off. It's like, oh, this person has, has had some kind of medical emergency. Okay, rush them off to the infirmary. But they did it so quickly and efficiently that the train kept freaking going. You, and you don't see the cumulative <laughs> effect of like, you've right. killed a whole train's worth of people. You're, right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that, that, that cult is really fascinating um, because like it's just interesting in all the ways that it, that their leader pretended to have magical powers and things. And in fact, some of the media that the cult produced, they produced like children's TV shows and things um, for their followers and to recruit new people. And you can actually find some of them on YouTube. I'll have to find the name of it. Maybe I'll put that in the recommendations, but they still, uh, they, they existed. And the people involved in the terrorist attack are still on death row or have just been executed as of like a year or two ago. There was like 40 people or something involved. It was a huge deal. Sure. Um, but anyway, fascinating story, but not one that we're here to talk about today. One of the things we wanted to talk about today was America is choosing another Supreme Court justice. Um, and this is a little bit, we've had some really dramatic uh, uh, hearings for America's Supreme Court justice recently. Of course, the Kavanaugh one was legendary for how vicious and that was the it most lit. Uh, yeah, that was, was that was like, I, you know, there was. Screaming and people and accusations and people accusing other people of gang rape. And it was just, 
That was something. <laughs> um, it was great TV. It was truly, I, I'll never forget that because I just moved in to France Crenier's cottage. I'd just gotten a job at the daily at yeah, the yeah. IRR. And I and like it's like very thrilled to hang out with the boss. And he was sort of always brying meat and there was lots of single malt whiskey. <laughs> and just at some point I was like, dude, I can't do this because like no human being is more interesting. Like, even if even if this is like my whole new life, and I'm very, dude, this is not more interesting than just watching CNN yeah, right now. Those, like, those hearings are quite something. Bazinga. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and then there was Amy Coney Barrett's one, which wasn't as dramatic, but still had a little bit of to and fro. And now, of course, Justice Bayer, uh, I think it is, uh, one of the, the, the lefty, uh, Breyer, 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 sorry. Breyer, B-R-E-Y-E-R. He's quite, I think he's the oldest. Well, he was the oldest justice and he's now retiring. He basically. Okay, so let's just give the background here. So in my opinion, the proper background is this. Breyer, Stephen Breyer was kind of the polar opposite of Antonin Scalia. So Antonin Scalia was the textualist, the originalist. He's like, here's how you need to figure out what's right and wrong. Go and... Look at the original the meaning. meaning of the words when they were written down and ratified, uh, and and just follow that. So you know he gets asked questions like you know if someone passes a law to say you can kill thirteen year olds, you can execute thirteen year olds for credit card fraud. Are you going to say that's okay? He's like, dude, I think that's stupid, but I'm definitely going to say that is constitutional. I'm not going to get in the way of that. So he would be fine. He would pass a lot of. He would he would say this is constitutional to a lot of things that are really awful. Um, right, famously he thing, he said what was it? Uh, it was a free speech case where he said it's uh, it's constitutional to burn the American flag. I think he said. Uh, yeah, that was, that, that was one of his more famous ones. That, yeah, that's the example he uses of like you know his own personal morals and what he thinks is right and wrong. His right. esteem judgments are different to his judgments as a as a justice. Right. And, I think and it's. it's a, a, it's a slightly it's soft a thing. example. It's not as no, no. It's, it is a soft example, but it is a it is the it's view real that one. I definitely yeah. It is the view that I definitely have the closest um, uh, affinity to uh, because I do think that you know when you pass a law, the law should be interpreted in the way that the law was passed then, and that courts shouldn't go too far in in interpreting. They should try and limit themselves. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy for that position. Braille was a bit different though. Me too. I, let me just say, I kind of, um, I'm, I, I'm happy to go with Scalia a lot of the way, not all of the way. He, he sort of used to sell his case on cruel and unusual punishment, and it is this, um, this case that came before the court about executing a minor, and the court ruled that this is unconstitutional. Because the Constitution says the government cannot engage in cruel and unusual punishment. And the court interpreted this to mean you can't kill teenagers. And he said, maybe today it is considered cruel. Maybe today it is considered unusual. But back when the Eighth Amendment, I think it was, was passed, this was considered neither cruel nor unusual. The only uh, penalty for a felony was uh, execution, capital punishment. And in, and it happened rarely, but now and then, minors were executed. And no one thought 
that they couldn't be. And if they weren't executed, no one thought that they shouldn't be executed because it's unconstitutional. They sort of pleaded mitigating factors and so on. Right. So he said the original meaning um, allowed for this, and so we must keep that meaning. And then the other side, guys like Breyer say, look, the meaning evolves. The Constitution doesn't have a fixed meaning. It's, it's, a, a, living it's a living document. document. Yeah. So, so I think that um, I'm kind of with neither side. Uh, uh, I'm a textualist, which is like Scalia. Like, I think you've got to listen to the word. So, so just to give a, a, a sense of the scale that I was introducing. On the one side, you've got the textual originalist. On the other side, you've got a guy like Breyer. Breyer literally said, here's how he does justice. <laughs> He leans back, he closes his eyes, he thinks, <laughs> what would be the right outcome here? And he figures out, ah, that would be the right outcome. And then he goes and he looks at the law and sees if he can find the yeah, tools. Yeah, he tries to find the right outcome in the law. To achieve that outcome. Now, he too will say, sometimes he can't find those tools. Right. And so he'll have to so make he's not, a judgment yeah. that goes against his personal morals which is the important thing where Nick and I agree. A judge has to go against their personal morals. That is a strange thing about that job. But you can't just do what you think is best. You've got to do what the law says. And that's what the rule of law means. Otherwise, you've got the rule of a lawyer. Someone just making it up. That's just a tyrant. The, the rule of man. Yes. Um, but Breyer's obviously got a lot more scope uh, <laughs> because he's explicitly trying to fit the words to what he already thinks is right, right. and wrong. Right. Whereas, whereas Scalia is going the other way. Now, I think that 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 the that the cruel and unusual um, uh, clause is not a particularly good clause for Scalia or for Breyer. It's better for. Here's why: it seems to be time indexed. So unusual. I think a, a natural English language reading of unusual is unusual at time T. And then you can have an understanding that time T is fixed as, as this time. So it's not actually time T as a moving variable. It's time T as a now. But you could also have unusual as in time T where time T is now the point of judgment. Um, now, in my view, and, and, and there are some documents in the, in, the, in the sort of in the framing of that amendment to support this view part of what is going on there was an understanding of the esteem market that if a punishment is unusual it's got a deleterious effect you know like even if you, if it's if, if you've got two punishments that are the same you know flogging someone with a rope and and spanking someone with a paddle might end up doing the same and both of those were legitimate things that could right. happen for the longest time uh for for like 150 years after that amendment uh and now can't happen because they're considered cruel and unusual okay never mind the point is both of the, let's say both of those can be done in a way that's like does equal physical damage if one of them is being done kind of to everyone and then the other one you single out this is just for pedophiles or this is just for blacks in an america that is super racist or this is just for whatever it is right this is just for atheists atheists 
Exactly. Very good example. Just the fact that it's unusual imbues it with a meaning that I think that amendment was trying to hold back on. The amendment was trying to say um, punishment needs to be pretty uniform. It needs to be non-discretionary as far as possible. And so there the you know unusual as in what is usual or unusual at this time where time moves forward. And so what is usual and unusual will move forward. Um, strikes me as just a plain English understanding with a with a with a serious principle behind it, reading of that law. Now I think that doesn't get you very far. It doesn't say the constitution is a living document. It says every time the constitution uses a word that is time indexed, you should respect that fact. There are very, very few such instances. You know, pretty much everything else is indexed in a in a universal time. But on the flip side, I think Scalia chose well because he's he sort of found a battle that would show, look, I'm such an originalist that even if there is this logical argument, because the logical argument I'm making is not the same as Breyer's argument. I'm not saying the whole text right. changes. I'm saying right. it only can change if it's written into the text that this will change as time changes. So, um, so yeah. I, I, I come at this from the perspective that the, the judiciary should by far be the least powerful of the three major branches of a liberal society and that it should have its its room to interpret should be basically pretty limited obviously yeah. there are cases because law is a very complicated thing where you definitely need interpretation there's always you need interpretation but you need right it. right yeah. right but but i think that when the law is producing perverse outcomes like executing a teenager that it is the job of the legislature to fix the problem because legislatures are very powerful and can do an awful lot of things. And one of the big problems that America in particular, but a lot of countries around the world have had for a long time, is that their legislatures sit on their ass and do nothing except posture for cameras and pretend like they are, you know, some speaking for some group or yeah. something, but they actually don't. Parliament, Parliament is Hollywood and the courts end up being the places that actually run the show. Right, which is that is which barbarism. Is, which is That's terrible. just like right back to the Stone Ages. You've got the right. unelected people running the show, and you've got a bunch of performers and, and kind of doing rituals of song and dance and group. Exactly, and exactly. And this is exactly what has happened in the US. Is, yes, you know, the, the monkeys, gay, gay marriage, monkeys. right? Gay, yes. gay marriage was a thing that was being fought through every state. The public was changing its mind on it. It was becoming legalized across the states. It was moving towards sort of full acceptance and then the process was short-circuited by some judges saying no, no actually it's it's in the constitution now maybe it is maybe it isn't but it just feels to me like that shouldn't have been the way the process should have gone i support gay marriage and i would have liked to have seen every state legalize it but i don't think this was the right way for it to happen mm -hmm. uh same thing with with and of course the one we've talked about i think we've done like two episodes on the show is roe v wade um yeah. which is about abortion and this is a problem with the American system, and I do think it's a problem with a lot of other systems. Their system in particular is vulnerable to it because of, of just like some of the precedents and things that have happened over the years. Um, but actually, because this I is think, related. I think they're particularly vulnerable because they're such an old democracy. Yes. So, yes. so a place like the UK only established a Supreme Court like 12 years ago. Something like that, yeah. Before that, uh, the, the sort of the, the judicial chamber of the House of Lords which was really an old boys club inside an old boys club inside an old boys club, like a Russian doll of 
of anti-democratic things. And and they did a pretty good job of, of doing nothing. Part of the reason the UK has such a strong parliament is because it's had such a uh, conspicuously weak court. It's one of the great yeah. ironies of the creation of the Supreme Court of, of the United Kingdom is that by, you know, since um, just about Halifax, uh, just sort of parallel history, uh, the, the, the House of Lords, uh, the last time I tried to do something serious was... 1911 or something, I think? Yeah. And it there got spanked a, on a, the... There was a brief crisis, yeah. It got spanked on the bottom very hard. And then it thought about getting in the way of the women's suffrage movement. Uh, <laughs> because they because the stiff upper lip gentleman <laughs> not approve. Um, and then they didn't because the, because in fact I think it was from George the Third's era where 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 they where they really got put in their place, um, right? And, uh, I mean I and mean the so, balance was from from the time of the of the English Civil War actually because that was where Parliament pretty illegally to be honest basically just usurped usurped the power of all everyone else and rammed through this judgment about how the king was responsible to parliament and that sort of thing yes. through a pretty shady process. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Harry beginning 1688, but, you know, through the 1700s, the House of Lords has very real power. Sort of after the Napoleonic Wars, it's substantially less in the Victorian era. And by the time you get to women's suffrage, they, they sort of openly, it's an open secret that they really don't want this thing to happen, that they've got the theoretical power to stop it from happening, but they're not going to do it. And I think that the, the, the crux issue where they were embarrassed was something to do with the Irish troubles. But um, this is a, this is a very side sideshow. The point is that through the 20th century, because the Lords had such low um, levels of prestige and clout within the political class, because they were kind of like royalty. The idea is to is to be around and look fancy and politely in back corridors, you know, maybe give a bit of good advice, but never to 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 try and flex. Um, their 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 apex court was really toothless. Um, and since the establishment of the Supreme Court of Appeals, which kind of had to be done once Parliament had signed on to the idea of the UK's constitution in part being the living and altering document of the European court's constitution, uh, they found themselves in a much more American style position. And I do think one of the stories of the next 50 years, I, I think it's like a this is like an incentive observation. Like, I think for now, there's so much goodwill and esteem and that's well distributed and maybe it could come sooner. Uh, but for the most part, it seems pretty well run. I think in 50 years, UK parliamentary uh, debate about um, who gets elevated to their apex court is going to seem a lot like America's debates today. And America's debates today are just about usually the most toxic um you know, Senate committee meetings that there are. And this is not a fresh thing. I mean, this is Biden was the right. head of that committee from, from the Democrat side for three decades. And he presided over, you know, there was some like filthy, ugly, ugly. It really started getting ugly with, with the the crushing of the nomination of, of Judge Bork. Um, and then, yeah, and then uh, Thomas, Clarence Thomas Clarence is also... Thomas, was so uh, ugly. He was passed, but he was called like a uh, an Uncle Tom very explicitly. Right. 
and and also accused of um, sexually harassing uh, uh, one of his one of his staff uh, members or one of his co-workers. I can't remember. It was, it was one of the two. Um, and he's and by the way, Clarence Thomas is in hospital, not for COVID. The Economist on Friday ran a, a hit piece on his wife, who's a Trumpkin who was at the January six rally, but didn't but left before the invasion of the Capitol uh, because she was chilly. And so they said, you know, this this woman is pretty evil, and her husband's See, not so bad, but they're kind of bad in the same ways. And then on Monday he was sick. And I wondered if they were worried about, like, if he died, <laughs> whether they would feel like they'd been a bit too harsh. Um, probably not. So one of the things where uh, we want to talk about today was uh, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, or Jackson Brown. Sorry, I keep forgetting which way her name Brown, is. Brown-Jackson. Brown her name is Jackson. Yeah. Uh, is is Biden's pick for for the Supreme Court. Um, so she's left-wing justice replacing a left-wing justice, which is why, while certainly Briar, the hearings have been a... Hold on, yeah. let's just make it clear. Briar was her mentor. Yes, so yes, yes. She yes, was yes. mentored by this guy who's like, here's how you do the law, you close your eyes. Right, so it's very much a... It's very much a the, the, the way that the court is going is quite similar, right? It's, yeah. it's not Amy like the Cota balance Barrett is going to be... Amy was the mentee of Justice Scalia. Right, and, exactly, and, exactly. And didn't directly take his seat because he died in office and, and I think Gorchich took his seat, but she yeah. sort of ended up in the court. Right. So there is this, I think, quite beautiful um, transformation where philosophies really matter. So it's kind of like, you know, yeah, no, I agree. So when I say, let me, let me, yeah. let me just uh, clarify, you're completely right there. And, and when I say left wing, right wing, I'm definitely oversimplifying. They are more complex than that, uh, uh, and and you know. So, for example, I think uh, 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 what's what's uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a better justice than, say, Sotomayor, yeah. Um, for example, right? And those are both they're both from the left of the spectrum, but I think one was you know had a more thorough, complex philosophy than the other. Um, so, anyway, th this is where she's coming from, and of course, the hearing as I'm sure we're going to talk about now, has been a bit toxic, but not as toxic as it would have been if the court's sort of partisan balance was in question, which it is not, because it's still going to be dominated by judges nominated by Republicans. Um, so that's, you an watched, important, that's an important observation. Yeah. So, so part of the reason it's not so hectic is because it's not so much as changing. So, so one of the reasons, though, that there are some dumb things going on about it is, and this is what I'm convinced, one of the big problems that ties into America's legislature just not being that great, is that the esteem market and the money market and the you know what gets rewarded with money um, is really messed up. You can have a much better career being uh, on TV, having a primetime show on MSNBC or Fox, than you can in Congress. Congress... You know, you're always having to field very angry calls from people in your district who are upset about something. Uh, you have to sit through very boring meetings all the time. Uh, you always are getting called scum because you're a politician. Yeah. But if you go on Fox or something, you earn multiple times as much money, uh, or MSNBC, it doesn't really matter. Uh, and you don't have people shouting at you all the time who you can't, you know, block. <laughs> so, so I think... 
what happens is a lot of and also you know because of fundraising is such a big thing for a lot of these politicians and the thing that really gets in small dollar donations is like really headline grabbing furious fighty clips of you every single politician on these uh, uh, committees is incentivized to give incredibly self-indulgent grandstanding vaguely related to the the hearing at hand the interview of the justice who they're supposed to right be, so on the one hand you've got cory booker the democrat uh from the from new england sort of from where i used to live saying you know your parents were poor and black and my parents were poor and black and it's amazing <laughs> right, right. that we've survived and we've done so well and we're yeah it's not really a question it's it's more like I'm you're so great i'm great we're all great <laughs> <laughs> And then on the other hand, you've got Lindsey Graham. Who it's like, are you really a Protestant? <laughs> well, okay. So hold on. Let's uh, let me say the nice thing about the Republic. Okay, so here's what the Republicans have been doing. They've been doing a lot of. Here's, here's, here's Lindsey Graham speaking to to Judge Future Justice Jackson. You're a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. What kind of Christian are you? You're a Protestant. You see, I'm. Lindsey Graham's really sweet. He's from the South. He says, you know, I'm not a very good Christian. I only go about three to church about three times a year. I'll bet you do it more than that. She's like, yes, I do. He says, I would never say this to you. I would never say this to you. I would consider this an outrage. I would consider this. I can't even use the words to describe how I would consider this. But I'm going to quote what was said to another nominee sitting in the same position as you. I just want to quote this to you, and I want to know how you respond. Could you just imagine for one Mississippi minute how you would feel if somebody said to you that your religion is a dogma that's going to hold you back from judging righteously and truthfully and honestly and even-handedly? Can you imagine what it would feel like for somebody to say that? And would you kindly respond to that imaginary statement? And she goes, uh, I don't know. What are you? And he's like, okay, you're, you're hesitant to say, and I understand that because it's so terribly embarrassing. But if you would, if you would <laughs> believe it, somebody actually said those words. Somebody, one of my dear colleague friends from the Democrats. Yeah, someone sitting over said there. Those words. Someone sitting over there on the other side of the aisle said your religion is a dogma and it will damn your ability to judge righteously. What and, was, and, uh, and he's referencing what was said about... I think Amy, it was by Amy. Diane Feinstein yeah. about Omi Coney Barrett, where she said, the she dogma said lives loudly in you. Yeah. Uh, Which was a that, terrible thing to say. Yeah, it was implying that she is basically a religious zealot who, can't, who isn't fit to be a judge because she's you know beholden to the Pope or something. Yes. So the, so the Republicans were doing a lot of um, two things in terms of their grandstanding. One is like, we are going to be so much more polite and genteel than <laughs> yes. those guys were with well, Joshua and Barrett. <laughs> and the other one was like, just because you're a black woman doesn't mean we're going to go soft on you, which I must say, I'm very irritated at Reuters and, and at the Associated Press's reporting on this, but especially the Associated Press. I currently have over two dozen articles by the Associated Press that all say uh, nominee Judge Jackson would be the first black woman to become Chief Justice at the SCOTUS. 
Like, I feel like once you're two dozen articles into covering the story, you don't have to say that multiple times in every article about... Gabriel, if, if the word historic doesn't appear enough, was it really done, you know? No, dude, I'm not I'm not done with this. Like, I'm, I'm really not, not done with this. And I really hated the headline, you know, black girls can finally look up to the SCOTUS. I, I resent people who try and inculcate the idea that black people are only allowed to look up to black people and that white people are only allowed to look up to white people. I think it's, I, that is racist. I don't dig it. Um, anyway, so I think it's good for people right, to and, say. And there were not a lot of people who, at those same institutions who are writing, you know, black boys are finally going to be able to think of themselves as chief justice when uh, uh, Tom, Clarence, Clarence Thomas, Thomas was. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, they, no, exactly. So it's not, it's, it's not about race. It's about a, it's, it's a it's about a code of conduct. I don't dig it. I think that I think it's fine to say it. You must say it a couple of times because it's a fact, and you should shy away from these things. And 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 society, as we progress, you know, there are rooms for little bits of racialism. But to fixate literally twenty four articles plus, like every single time, uh, I think it's demeaning to her. I think it's demeaning in the same way that Joe Biden's initial. Thing of saying, you know, whatever I do, I'm going to nominate a, a black woman. I think that I think that is well, look, just very I mean, what a terrible. If I was if I was Judge Judge Jackson, I would feel very uncomfortable about this because now everyone's going to be looking at you saying, "Well, she's only there because she's her race and gender." Yeah. I mean, what a miserable way to be nice. introduced. If if, if you just picked her, if you just picked and not her. said any of that dumb stuff. Dude, but the amazing thing is that she is so genial. I think that is the most genial person I've ever seen on TV. Yeah. She's so genial that she's kind of dissolved a lot of, you know, as, as much as the Republicans are trying to play this as like, we're going to be sweet and gentle. And they and they haven't always stuck to it. I, please don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm not Josh, Lindsay, Josh Hawley Lindsay basically Graham said, also yeah. ran off. Yeah, and Josh Hawley was like, yeah, you're soft on child molesters. So you shouldn't be justice. And I'm so on her side. I've got to say, the issues that they have gotten into, one is that, look, there was this, one, one is about the child molesters, and her point has been a, a controversial point I've tried to make on the show, is that, um, that a criminal justice system that's effective has got to have stringent punishments, uh, that's part of it. It's got to have an esteem distribution thing. Uh, in other words, it's not just enough that you get locked up. It's also got to be the case that you get shamed. Um, that's a big problem with white collar crime is that people kind of think it's not really bad. Um, it's clearly not a problem with pedophilia. Uh, but you've also got to avoid um, establishing perverse incentives for 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 counterculture creation. And and yeah, my guiding light is the Australian criminologist Robert Braithwaite, whose 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 founding text is is crime, shame, and reintegration, where the thought is that unless you're being executed for a, for a truly high crime, there must be some idea of you being reintegrated into society. I take it on the basis of a monkey video that I saw in uh, New York's. Um, uh, Natural History Museum, sort of founded by Teddy Roosevelt, but this was quite a re you know recent thing where you where you uh, there was this iPad display and the, and they said here's a monkey that's 
the first time that we've recorded a monkey actually seeming to invent a new word or find a new word, right? So they had like 25 words on the iPad that they could press the button and it would communicate that thing and they were pretty good at it. And one day the guy is like walking the monkey across from like where they hang out in the day to where it's supposed to chill at night. And he's a little bit late because he's covering for a colleague who had to leave early sick. And so he's walking his dog and he's walking the chimpanzee at the same time. And the chimpanzee is kind of jealous because he's holding the human's hand, but the human's other hand is like holding the lead with a dog. So the chimpanzee grabs the little Jack Russell and flings it across the road. Jack Russell lands on all four feet and immediately starts barking. Don't worry. Can, Jack Russell is can, fine. Can, can I just say that chimpanzees of all the apes are my least favorite. And orangutans are the best. I will die on that hill. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Uh, orangutans can be pretty vicious. Anyway, we'll get into Edgar Allan Poe later. Dude, so th this guy lifts up the chimp and dunks it down. It's like, blah, 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 shouting at it and then showing it the iPad and pressing bad, bad, bad. And the, and the monkey is like looking away and doesn't want to confront it. And it's like skulking and sulking. And then eventually kind of just mopes and then grabs it and looks at him at his, at his dude and then looks at himself and presses bad. And points to himself and presses bad again. And then like points to himself and presses bad again. And then he's like totally chilled and gives the thing back. And moves along with his life. And their theory was, and I think it's a great theory, that this monkey had invented the word, I'm sorry. Or had found Ooh. the new word, I'm sorry. Because that was not a word in the iPad dictionary. But saying I'm bad, like three times in a row or whatever is the same thing as I'm as saying, I'm sorry. And if you watch the clip, I think you'll totally believe it. I totally believe it. I believe that I'm sorry. just means I'm so bad that you don't have to worry about it. I'm going to take care of this problem. I'm going to clean up the mess. Um, and I think that this is sort of uh, kind of, Nicholas, to be honest, I can't remember how this connects to the Supreme court case actually. <laughs> You were we were talking about being soft on people accused of sexual misconduct. Oh right, sexual misconduct, things like that. No, no wonder I ran away from it because it's such a hard thing to say. But at a certain level, with all crimes, reintegration means this person has kind of said, "I'm bad so much that they are now their own parole officer." Like that is what a citizen is. A citizen is just their own parole officer. A citizen is not without evil impulses or wicked temptations and so on and so forth. We all have all kinds of gross stuff in us. A citizen is just someone who guards society against themselves. And uh, a prisoner, that's the, that's the goal, is to get a prisoner who's not a full citizen because it requires other guards to check over them to become a citizen. And a citizen is never alone in guarding society against themselves. We, we always... Um, depend on each other's estimations uh, to, to keep us in check. But there is a kind of, you know, you can trust me when I'm alone sort of thing that happens when, when, when you've got full citizenship that is deprived when you've got a prisoner. And, and that's the idea of reintegration. It's not that you skip the shame. It's not that you skip the punishment. It's that you keep the window open to, to, to the monkey human being that we all are pressing bad enough times and, and meaning it enough that they reprogram themselves to take care of themselves. 
And America's way of dealing with sex crimes doesn't always allow for that. It's different by state. But some states just it's it's really like you're you're staying for life and you're never trusted and you never have a part to citizenship. And she was pushing against that, and I'm kind of on her side. I think it's very difficult to do. No one's ever going to like you for doing it. Um, yeah, let me let ways... me just say that. Let yeah. me just say that you know I I do tend to be more sort of harsh in terms of what I think that sentencing for various crimes should be, and yet America, I think broadly speaking, is too harsh on its criminals. Uh, you 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 go to jail for a very long period of time, and and this is I think one of the explanations for why American jails are so full. Often people criticize the American justice system, will say, oh, they've got this per capita, some huge number of people in jail, you know, some of the worst in the world. Um, Definitely the worst. In the world. And yeah. yeah, well, it depends. You know, that, that list also includes countries like sort of China, where you know, prisoner is not always defined the same way or whatever, but right, right. <laughs> so it's not quite a fair comparison, but of the democratic countries of the sort of, you know, no, dude, of the democratic countries is like the worst by an order of magnitude. Yeah. Right. Um, and one of the reasons for that is I think not necessarily because people, um, because, you know, they have uh, so much crime or because the police are racist or something. I think it's just often because they put people in jail for 30 freaking years uh, for, for something they should probably only be in jail for 10 years or 15 years. Yeah. Uh, and so you've got like, you know, grandpas in jail, which, you know, it's for, 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 for an armed time, Yeah. So at the same time, the legitimate worry, I think from the Republican side, is that if she thinks it's wrong to follow the guidelines on sentencing, then she better be imposing those sentences in a way that's consistent with the rule of law. She can't just be closing her eyes and being like, how long do I think this guy should go to jail? Okay, right. now let me find and a this, way to make that happen. And that was a problem in America in the 70s. It was one of the reasons why they're too harsh on criminals now is because yeah. they kind of went too much the other way previously, yeah. and now they've had to reverse course. Yeah, in their in their bounce back from prohibition. It was, so America is a, is, is a pendulum like so many things with this. But, so, but, but generally speaking, I think it's pretty brave of her to do that. Her, the other thing was Guantanamo Bay, and just to flag it like, you know, there was this there was this dopey Republican who said, you know, how come how dare you say that the then President George W. Bush and the Secretary of State, I don't know who it was, Colin Powell or somebody, is a war criminal. And she said, I don't could you uh I don't actually could you like enlighten refresh my memory about that reference? Is that you were defending those Guantanamo Bay terrorists? And you call the president a Republican, a war criminal. And she said, I don't actually recall doing that that way. Um, uh, I don't know how the rest of that debate went because the C-SPAN YouTube video I was watching sort of was editorialized. So it cut to the, the question from the Democratic chair who then says, who explains the situation, which is that she was defending these people on Guantanamo Bay, which is pretty kind of shady probably illegal um by any international or standard obama promised he'd get rid of it it's sort of 14 years later it's still around because it turns out to be really convenient to have a place that's not on american land so you don't have to apply american law but not quite in international waters so you don't quite have to like do uh um u n geneva convention stuff 
uh, in terms of how you deal with your war criminals so that you have, uh, you know, uh, this thing. And Lindsey Graham's big irritation is that, you know, we're spending half a billion dollars a year on like 49 criminals. And he thinks that's totally worth it because if you let any of them out, the recidivism rate is so high, they'll just go kill more Americans. And so half a billion to to sort of keep uh, 40, 50 terrorists under the screw is 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 actually pretty cheap if you if you look at right US and they, military expenditure. there is some evidence for that that the taliban some of the taliban very real who came back to carry on were people who were let out of guantanamo yeah so i don't want to i don't want to uh i i do think guantanamo bay is, is it's like one thing it's it's really in this gray zone of like if you think about it in peacetime terms it is so illegal if you think about it as a military if you think of it like a military submarine or something, it's so smart. I think it's it's like one of the best bits of military infrastructure there is. And so it's like it's like depending on your view, it's very hard to think about. Anyway, she was defending um, some inmates, sort of countersuing the government to say that their detention is illegal. And one of the things that uh, uh, was alleged was that those inmates were being tortured. Uh, which is a war crime. So she, you know, so she was uh, filing a suit before a before a court, which, if it had been successful, would have defined some branch of the American government as guilty of a war crime. Uh, my understanding is the suit failed, but I thought it's important that that this was the context, because that is a perfectly reasonable context to me. Uh, it wasn't that there was some cheap line. It wasn't that she went on CNN for money and said, oh, my God, he's a war criminal. Um, you know, it was like, we're going to go before a court. We're going to take the evidence. The court will yeah, consider it, the, it. In the context of being a lawyer, and lawyers are supposed to do as what they can for their clients. And no, but even within that, dude, you know, Mike Avenatti the sort of bald lawyer for <laughs> America was like suing America against, you know, it's like he was fighting for America against Trump. Like there's a lot of like gross the, the sort or of illegal things you can what, do. What would you call, what would you call Michael Avenatti? The, the lead standard of lawyers or something. Yeah. Dude, what's he was what's like, the opposite of the gold standard? <laughs> <laughs> he was, he turns out to be the Trump of lawyers. You know, he, he did find, <laughs> In retrospect, and I think he's in jail now, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> anyway, read into that what you will. Um, so, so I, you know, on, on the Gitmo and on the on the on the child molesting thing, you know, I think it's good for the Republicans to do their job and try and scrutinize her. And some of them are making too much of a, a meal out of it. And as you say, that there are these terrible TV incentives. Um, but I think she has just shone out so well. My only reservation is this, and Dan McLaughlin on National Review has a good piece about it. I wonder, uh, I think she's got the highest EQ, greatest geniality that I've seen on TV in a very long time, in a very difficult emotional trying circumstance. Brett Kavanaugh did not do so well. Amy kind of bad was kind of there, but kind of flinty. Um... Katinji Jackson is just is just seems to be really good at making people 
kind of feel good about themselves and calm down and maybe bring out the best in themselves. But I don't know how well developed her own judicial reasoning is. Partly, there's this concern that, like, in her time in the District Court of 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 the District of Columbia, which is the kind of second most important court in America, because that's where a lot of the that's kind of their like Supreme Court of Appeals for things about federal government. They've got eleven circuit courts, but the 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 DC Circuit Court is sort of the one. She's been there for a couple of years, and 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 her nomination opening speech then and now two years ago was the same. You know, like I'm a Christian, I love God, I'm so blessed. The biggest blessing that God gave me was to make me an American, which is just such a an interesting thing to hear from Team Blue. I think yeah, it's great. There's not it been a lot of that out of Team Blue recently. No, and it kind of just makes it's so nice when something that when something happens like that, where it's like, this was like a yeah. team red thing. No, it's actually across team red and team blue because it, it sort of reduces that tension between those two things. Right, which is what it used to be before America started going in its very funny navel-gazing way. Yeah. But so I wonder I wonder how well... Here's my worry. My worry is that someone in Biden's camp thinks that 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 Judge Jackson is just the best vessel katanji is the best vessel she's an empty vessel but the best vessel for um for delivering like swing vote moments in the scotus that the christian conservatives will relate to her that she might not have all the ideas but like her handlers in the democratic aid universe can sort of feed her the right arguments to try and sort of sway those guys the reason i worry about that is because I do just think that there's um, always in politics a difficult thing about like who's the horse and who's the jockey. And I think often great politicians are horses. Um, like Ronald Reagan in a lot of ways was a horse and Milton Friedman right. was the jockey. And that's great. Uh, Reagan's, Reagan's, Reagan's uh, was famously a, a delegator. <laughs> yeah. He was like, I'm going to take a nap. You guys sort it out. I trust you. I'll be back. I'm gonna make. I'll tell some jokes. It's gonna be. That's the kind of president I would be, by the way. <laughs> I and I think that's great for a president. I'm really into that for politics. I'm really not into that for judges. Um. So I'm not sure. I'm not saying that listeners the case. can't see, but I'm nodding sagely. <laughs> yes. I'm not saying that's the case. There were a couple of answers where I thought uh, Katanji was sort of like I don't know, not not just not not grasping the intellectual nettle yeah, so, and running with it. And maybe that's part of her affect. Maybe she kind of knows what she's doing, but, but she be, just... Yeah, to be uh, fair to her, you, you have to, yeah, you have to play a bit dumb on these Senate hearings because the goal is it's going to be a partisan vote, right? Democrats are almost all going to vote for her. Uh, all of them are probably going to vote for her. And maybe one or two of the very like swing state Republicans will vote for her. So all she has to do is make sure that no one can come up with a reason to say, you know, this is an outrageous crime for you to be on the court. So that means playing your cards very close to your chest. And, you know, it's pretty a, pretty much a performative exercise in a lot of ways anyway, as we just talked about. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think that the kind of goal that she would have been told by the president's team is just 
don't go off on philosophical tangents. Just stay, because this is one of the things I think that happened to Bork in that first thing yeah. where he got shot yeah, down. Yeah, he got, he, that, that is exactly what happened. And the lesson ever right. since then has been... So, so she's almost certainly playing a bit dumb just because she doesn't want to get drawn into anything that then can be used as a political tool to deny her nomination. But I do not believe that she would have not been nominated if the Biden administration did not believe that she was going to be a reliable political ally on the court. And I think that it's very possible for her to prove them wrong on that point. That she could also, do this is thing. the other thing that I wanted to say. I right. think sort of anticipating our pre-chat, which is that because I, so I think she, maybe, maybe she's not the sharpest tool in the shed, and I, and I mean like smarter than you and smarter than me, uh, but like in the in the super genius universe of SCOTUS, maybe she's right. like an A. Gorsuch, than an a Gorsuch is 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 sharper than Kavanaugh, I think, for example. Exactly, that's perfectly right. correct. Kavanaugh really is more of a choir boy, and Gorsuch really is more of a knife. Um, <laughs> Gorsuch is amazing to listen to, and 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 Chief Justice Roberts is just stun. He's a stunning intellect. Um, it's it's it's. I find it flabbergasting. But so, um, I, I, maybe. And, and just, just just to back this, the part of the problem is that, like, in her time on the district court, she didn't write many opinions. She only wrote two, and they just came out. Um, and I and I haven't read them yet, so I'm not going to judge either way. I've read people who've been snarky about them, but like, if they were on Team Red, and I think they've been too snarky about her yeah. in general. I think she seems pretty great. Maybe you can, you can find someone being snarky about an American political figure if you look hard enough. <laughs> exactly. So, so this is why the other side is like, maybe she is playing them and maybe she really does mean what she says when she says she's committed to sort of interpreting the original text as it stands uh, and being bound by the law first before sort of trying to find what the correct remedy is. She said all of these things in her opening statements. Not only was she like super Christian and, and um, blessed to be in America, kind of the opposite of the 1619 project, uh, which is more important to me than the Christian, but um but the Christian way is a sort of way of understanding it. The the more interesting thing is this uh, lip service that she's paid to originalism. And maybe just maybe the Biden group has made a bit of a mistake. Maybe she is more of a swing vote than than, than they anticipate. And I got to tell you that if, if for, if for, for a woman who is described 24 times in sort of 17 articles as the first black uh, Supreme Court justice to be somehow underestimated, um, would not be that surprising to me. It wouldn't be that surprising if Team Blue. So yeah, has, would it would it be done was delicious? What, yes. If if because of their 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 racialism and their and their sexism and the fact that they decide they were going to pick someone based on their gender and race, they ended up picking someone who was an ally <laughs> to their opponents because they were being racist. That would be so funny. <laughs> I think, and I think it might. It's a maybe. It's a maybe. It's 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 a, it's just something to keep your eyes open for. And if it's not like that, and she and she's Briar's uh, sort of mentee through and through, that's fine. Um, I think that there is room in the court for a Briar. I think there's room in the court for someone who says, guys, okay, you guys are so interested in the law. What about what's right and wrong? Um, uh uh, so, 
and 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 that's because if it is one judge, I would say there's no room for that. If there's nine judges, I think there's room for a judge to be like that, um, uh, because I think it's a conversation and uh, and and, and right. all kinds of mistakes can be made. So, but so, so I don't so know. I'm I... kind of hopeful. Maybe I'm just too hopeful. I'm sort of so yeah. Hopeful. Look, maybe like I, I I like the idea too. And, and let me let me say that I am. I do like the Supreme Court as an institution. I think it's way too powerful in America, but there's a lot of things to like about it. I like the nine justices. I like the fact that the justices are very collegial with each other, oh, even when they so have good. very different opinions. They're even like nicer the with each other than you and I are with each other. No, for sure. They. <laughs> I like the fact that they are very uh, protective of the institution. They don't go around trashing the institution and things or trashing the fellow judges, they will defend the institution and its its role, responsibility, perception of independence and stuff. Sometimes I think that can interfere with their law, with the, you know, the judgments they make. But there are very few uh, forces in America, never mind the world, uh, where, where people are genuinely defending an institution and putting it above themselves. And I think yeah. the American Supreme Court is one of the places where that exists. And I hope that long it may continue. In fact, America, considering how powerful the Supreme Court is, if the Supreme Court was worse, man, it would... <laughs> and it's been worse in the past. I mean, you know. Oh, God, it has famous, been worse. Famously, of course, the worst is probably the Dred v. Scott decision back when, during slavery when I said being in a free state doesn't free you as a slave kind of thing. Um and there's such but really, one day, one day you must remind me to prep for an episode about what built up to Dread versus Scott because it turns out to be the, the the backbone for this book I have behind me, the group agency, which I wrote my uh, sort of junior little thesis about when I was at university. But the 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 worst in a way was in the twenties when the when when the justices were flipping slapping each other through the commentary pages of the New York Times and refusing to kind of meet in the same room. So, I mean, Nicholas is right to say Dredd versus Scott is the worst in terms of judgment, but in terms of collegiality, more recently than that, um, there was a total breakdown of, of those norms. And I, and I think uh, Robert um, has done an excellent job of, of, of instilling... A, making you know giving friendliness a sense of discipline i think friendliness probably does require a bit of discipline in a way that's difficult to grapple with i i think you kind of do have to go way back to the medieval or ancient philosophers to find people who talk about it in those terms i you know even if i think um alexander nehemus this princeton professor wrote a book on friendship and he observed that it had been several centuries since um, any intellectual of much note had tried to tackle friendship or friendliness as, as a concept worth dissecting and analyzing and seeing like, what are the essential ingredients? What can you do with, what can you do without and so on? Um, and I think he did have a sense of discipline, but, but even still less so than, than the ancients and the and the sort of dark, late dark ages, early medieval guys had, and they had it more easily because discipline was more obviously a, a, a prerequisite for survival back then, um, and so they didn't have this as much of a 
a negative background attitude to necessity. Like I think these days it's like if something is necessary, it can't be that good. It must be like pooing or breathing cancerous oxygen or, you know. Um, but like a lot of like – anyway, discipline is obviously necessary to get anything done. Sometimes you've Sometimes you've got to do something you wouldn't otherwise want to do in order to do something you would want to do. And friendship, I think, is is one of those goods, just like so many others, where sometimes you've got to bite your tongue. Uh, or sometimes, more often, you've got to show up when you're sort of not into it. Um, sometimes you've got to help someone who needs help, even though you're really busy. Sometimes you need to let someone help you, even though you think you know better because you don't. There are all these kinds of things that are, I sound platitudinous and obvious, but I do think that the Supreme Court just comes across to me as the most friendly institution. And like it is, I and I think it's inextricably connect inextricably connected to what you were saying, Nick, about the sense of putting the institution kind of above any of the individuals. Uh, really thinking that that does matter more. I don't know whether this happens, but I, I find it difficult to believe that this doesn't happen, that the moment you get onto the court as a new justice, the other eight take you into a room and they put you down and they say, okay, dude, here's the rules. Welcome to the club. You're a very special member of the club and we're very happy to have you. And this is how we do things here. And you stick by these rules. We'll all get along. You don't stick by these rules. We won't get along. And that is, I think, why they're also consistently sort oh, of no, on dude, the same I, page, it seems. <laughs> I think I, no, Judge Roberts has made it pretty clear. Like, when the court is in session for eight months in the year, like, we will have three lunches a week at least together. We will not talk about work during those lunches. When we deliberate about what we're going to do, that'll be after lunch. And everyone will shake everyone's hand before every deliberation. And when we begin, everyone will speak before anyone speaks twice. There is, I mean, these are some of the basic the, rules, dude. Amazing this, rules. Amazing. This is partly this is partly why uh the onion made a skit, did a skit about how all of the justices sleep in one gigantic bed. Yes. It's mostly <laughs> making fun of the fact that they're old, but it's also kind of making fun of the fact that they are, they do seem, at least to the outside, like one big happy family. Dude, and Roberts is like, at, at you know, he, he's figured out about the order of things, like Clarence Thomas. There were, there were a couple of years where people were like, Clarence Thomas is not asking so many questions. Is he just a bit of a dunderhead? And Clarence Thomas, being the, the black conservative, oh, is that a nice way to describe him? Not really. Anyway, the, the the sort of southern dude, the most southern dude, he's like, I don't like how the other justices do it because they don't interrupt you. And they don't interrupt one another because if you listen to how they do the deliberation, you get about 75 seconds to make your argument at the beginning. And then it's just Q&A for an hour. And there's no chairperson for the Q&A. It's just like someone asks you a question. And then if your answer is kind of boring, someone else, he'll interrupt you or someone else or she'll interrupt you or someone else will interrupt you. Uh, and so there's this sort of cross play between people who are trying to help you out because they like what you're saying and people who are trying to cut you down because they kind of feel like ruling against you. 
and he did not like that kind of trust. So he gets to answer his question. He gets to ask his couple of questions first. But during lunch, apparently there's a bit of a rule. Like, you know, everyone is strongly encouraged that they also have to contribute to the lunch banter. So Justice Alito, who is the most man of the people, like New York, Hispanic, God, he reminds me of my friend Ricky Cooperman so much. He, he likes talking about baseball. America's great game. He's going to tell you about the baseball. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia, they would tell you about the opera. And Clarence Thomas would tell you about his family and, 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 and the sort of beautiful accomplishments that, that, that are happening down in the South and so on down the line. Uh, and, and the way that, that Judge Roberts kind of, Justice Roberts describes it, one does get the sense that at some level they are kind of stuck in a rut because sometimes they don't want to talk about things, but they just have to do it. And so, and so this is my play. Like if I don't know what else to talk about, this is my this is my conversational gambit. This is what I'm going to offer up. And I think everyone in 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 a, in a collegial office actually knows what it's like. You know, there's some dudes who you know if there's a moment of silence that's kind of awkward, they're gonna they're gonna they've got their shtick, and they're gonna hit it, and that's fine. That is the, that is part of the glue that holds us together and and it's not as nutritious as as the spontaneous bubbles of champagne that emerge now and then through chance and happenstance of like just a great coincidence of of moods and thoughts but yummel i i think it's really a bad idea to to look down on that i think it really is very valuable and i think i i think yeah I think uh, I think Judge Jackson is going to is going to join a group of of nine people with a, a stunningly stunningly friendly work vibe that that is about as important as anything on this planet. Like in terms of like a, a group dynamic of nine people getting along, uh, the world's greatest superpower, the fact that they all get along, is amazing. Now let that be a segue, Nicholas, to yes to one of the things that sort of freaks me the most out about this war, which is that the Russian Constitutional Court and the Russian Supreme Court, of, which are two different courts, um, which both share apex functions. We, um, yeah, we have a similar situation, don't we? No, we used to have a similar situation until I think it was the 16th Amendment, which basically took away Bloemfontein as the apex court and, and resolved that Johannesburg Concord is everything. Uh, and the SEA uh, became a secondary appellate court. Anyway, they have what we used to have. They, they had what we had in, in the year 2000. Uh, we've got a Concord, which is supposed to deal with interpretive points, and you've got a Supreme Appellate Court. What's interesting about the Supreme Appellate Court is that it's got subdivisions and that a full sitting of, of the Russian Supreme Appellate Court is... It's like a hundred justices or like more. So it's kind of too many justices to track what's going on, which kind of seems nice. It's a little bit like Nicholas's idea of the ultimate justice system where you know, you've always got 300 judges. Um, jurors. <laughs> jurors. 
Uh, but that's the thing. When you've got so many, it's like, are they judges? Are they jurors? How much room is there for reasoning things out? And how much does it just devolve to voting? Um, and once it's devolved to voting, a lot of the uh, cost factors that you... Like one judge is not as good as three judges because it's easier to bribe one judge. But in some ways, 300 jurors are easier to bribe than nine judges because if, you, if you're just trying to get someone to vote up or down, it's different to trying to get someone to like reason something out. So whatever the numbers are, you, you can sort of find an inflection point. I'm not sure the brush has struck it. Certainly, I worry a lot about its judicial system. And I'm, and I'm quite eager if I can... I would, I would love to I'd love to be a, a court reporter in Russia because um, I think they could do with some some eyeballs that care but you know there's there's a war going on and I suppose um, rather than relitigate the causes or whether Russia counts as a democracy there's just this immediate question about how's the war doing um, and and I think that I think what we can all agree on is that uh, with at least a thousand civilians having been killed uh, and and quite possibly a lot more uh, uh, there's something there's something happening which which is which is like history sped up. Right, so you know, in South Africa, what's the murder rate? Uh, maybe something like sixty a day, fifty a day. You know, sixty thousand a year, over half a million in the last twenty-two years. Um, uh, nothing like those numbers, uh, but it hasn't been that long. Um, in, a, in in such a short period of time, I think one, one seldom finds so many innocents being killed. And uh, something like 10 million people have had to leave their homes and 3 million of them have left the country. Correct. So huge dislocation, uh, financial ramifications up and down the line. So, so, so it's, it's a grisly affair, but there is this ongoing business of trying to analyze it. And I must say, I'm going to... I pick a little bit on my friend Boyke Sidley, Stephen Sidley, who uh, wrote a piece for the Daily Maverick where he was like, oh, it's so terrible. I don't even want to look at it. And then goes on to like provide analysis. I think it's important to like, if you want to feel emotional and you don't want to think about it, that's fine. Um, but if you want to analyze, you have to lean into the fact that uh, at some level, uh, war is like chess. Uh, and you see these pieces on a board, you see these uh, units on a map, and you move them around, and you see what's going on with strategy and tactics. And I think being explicit about those two points of view, the human point of view where you're sort of uh, metaphorically or, or actually um, uh, holding the woman who's, uh, who's miscarrying or dying in child labor because shrapnel has gutted her, uh, that's a very human place to be. Um and there's another human place to be, which is to sort of analyze the battle from the bird's eye point of view. Uh, and I think it's really important to see the difference between those two things, uh, because the alternative is to is is sometimes to kind of import the emotional energy from the one and put it into the other. Uh, 
and in either direction it's not great um and and it's the nature of you know for example judicial analysis in peacetime it's also something we have to hold on to it'll be a great task for judge jackson when she becomes justice jackson for all of their supreme court for uh, chief justice raymond zondo here in south africa and, and all of our justices in our constitutional court and for all the judges up and down the line is that their opinions are gonna are gonna change lives uh and when and when you're and when your judgment's in that position uh you 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 need to recognize this sort of ironic distance between what it feels like to suffer someone else's pain em empathetically and maybe even ecstatically and and what it is to to adjudicate the matter soberly and judiciously. Uh, those are both really important tasks. Uh, and, I, and I think it's worth respecting both. Anyway, so there's the preface. Now, Nicholas and I were sort of discussing the war, and I think we've got slightly different senses just in terms of the battlefield uh, about where things are. Um, I... I, I I think it's probably no surprise <laughs> that that I think the Russians are doing slightly better than Nick thinks. Maybe it is a surprise. I think that it's sort of poised 50-50. Nick was saying that he thinks it's, it's sort of that the, 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 that the Ukrainians are actually in the ascendancy. Um, I don't know. Do you want to go first, dude? I've, I've, I've kind of given a, a long sort of background spiel because... Yeah, I, look. I, I still feel rattled. I feel constantly rattled by this. Like sometimes I feel quite on top of my own emotional state, and then I'll encounter a friend or a or a clip or a or a or a or a, or a, a think piece, and I, I I kind of get a bit thrown off because I think of this ongoing disjunction between sort of how much I care and how little control I have. So emotionally, I just remain. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I have a. I, I, uh, emotionally, I sit in a strange position. Um, I am definitely emotionally on the side of Ukraine, uh, and I. But at the same time, I feel almost kind of desensitized to everything. And maybe that's because I've played too many violent video games throughout my whole life. But anyway, I've been watching far too much footage of this, uh, of a lot of people dying, which is instructive in some ways, but also, you know. Uh, I have a horrible feeling it's going to come out in therapy later. But be that as it may, um, I have been, uh, you know, following some of these open source intelligence accounts. These are basically just dudes who are interested in military stuff. They're nerds like in any, you get in any field. And these guys um, uh, are trying to work out what's going on based off of available to view satellite photos, which you can get on the internet which are surprisingly updated almost all the time. Uh, photos taken from social media. So, for example, whenever some Ukrainian civilians or soldiers or Russian soldiers post a TikTok of themselves or post a photo of a vehicle that's been blown up, captured or something, they look at that. They try to work out where it is using Google Maps. It's actually really fascinating how they integrate all these sort of open source pieces of material and then use this to determine, firstly, where the fighting is, how well equipped the sides are, who's losing what. So when it comes to terms of casualties, number of bodies, 
it's basically impossible because you know people tend to not photograph bodies that much uh, and when they do it's often for a very specific purpose that's like very propagandistic so it's it's very unreliable um, but equipment is much better to get a sense of so one of these guys is called oryx spionkop he's a dutch guy despite the fact that he sounds like he's an afrikaans guy uh and him and his friends whoever runs that account have been building a list of the losses of equipment of both ukraine and russia let me just say um, Spionkop, hugely internet like there i think um in one of the largest stadiums soccer stadiums in the uk the sort of big stand is called Spionkop. Uh, yes yes because it's, it's a South Africa. very very famous battle for like yeah. military notes but, but he's he's he, he claims that he's not named after the battle, that he's just named after, like, Lookout Point or Spy Hill, um, because that's sort of what he does. Anyway. Which is really, anyway, it's a great YouTuber's name. <laughs> yes, yes, it's very good. <laughs> this dude has been compiling a list, and basically what he does is he says, here's a photo of a destroyed, captured, abandoned vehicle, whatever, by either side. They try firstly work out which side it belongs to. Then they try and geolocate it to say it's over here. And then they list it as saying, you know, whatever happened to it, damaged, captured, destroyed. So it's pretty interesting. And I think it's at least relatively accurate. These guys have been doing it for a long time. They didn't just start with Ukraine. These guys were apparently all watching the war in Syria where they were doing a similar thing. And there's actually a surprisingly robust sort of subculture of these open intelligence guys who back different sides in these conflicts, even when they have nothing to do with it. Like, for example, the Syrian community had people who are pro-Assad and people who are pro-Russia and people who are pro-Kurd and people who are pro-Turkey, all like, you know, trying to spin the thing and find out info and arguing with each other and, and doing sort of esteemed team signaling stuff, which is really interesting. But anyway, this list suggests that... Um, you know, a number of things. For example, while Ukraine has certainly suffered quite a lot of equipment losses, the Russians have abandoned so much that the Ukrainians have then managed to capture that it means that despite the huge numbers they've lost, they've actually kind of captured an awful lot of things that they could perhaps turn around. Because the Ukrainians have this advantage where uh, Russian tech is very similar to theirs because they were both part of the Soviet Union. So it's not that difficult for them if they capture a piece of equipment to turn it around. Like if, you know, some people are saying, oh, you must give Iron Dome or the Patriot missile system or something to Ukraine to shoot down planes. And the answer to that is, no, that's a terrible idea, mostly because they probably can't use it, which would mean that you'd have to have soldiers from those countries, from Israel or America or whatever, running those systems. Yeah, which then introduces the, the, uh, yeah, then, the then nightmare. Introduce we don't want to get into that. Yeah. Right, right, right. So it's pretty useful for them to get this stuff. Anyway, the Spionkop guys list, which seems pretty comprehensive, and you can go and check it. You know, it's got links to basically every photo, suggests that the Russians have lost an absolutely enormous number of vehicles. Everything from tanks to infantry fighting vehicles to uh, aircraft, not as much. Um, and in fact, the Ukrainians are claiming you know, like eight times as much aircraft as the Spionkop guy has been able to, to catalog. Um, but that suggests to me, plus uh, added to that, some of the military intelligence reports being put out by the US and the British, who are not, not biased, because they're obviously pro-Ukrainian, 
but they're a little bit not in the i mean like because you know i've been following this stuff on twitter quite closely and the ukrainians pr strategy i think was very good in the beginning and now it's sort of turned into if they hear anything even vaguely anti-russian or bad for russia they just tweet it out immediately on all their government accounts which of course means that plenty of rumors and stuff start flying around which are complete garbage i mean they've been saying now for what since the war began that belarus was imminently about to join and while i think that's still a possibility belarus has not joined yet uh so that's you know a good example of why they should be taken with a grain of salt but um this suggests to me that Russia has taken quite a beating. In, okay, but in so this. what was the number? You gave the number of like five percent of their of their armor. Yeah, something like truck. something like five to ten percent of all of their heavy equipment. So that's vehicles, artillery pieces, tanks, has been knocked out. And about ten thousand casualties in terms of Russian soldiers. Yeah, Russian that soldiers. number I'm much less sure on. Um, that's so the number the, the American intelligence agency has. It's sort of halfway between what the Russians are saying. Or the Russians well, no, said almost nothing. And the Ukrainians the Russians said like, 500 and something on March the 3rd. And then since then, they've just given no figures. Yeah, it's March 24th. It's not and the Ukrainians are saying, I think, 15,000? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. No, I think they said 15,000 at the in last week. Sort of oh, possibly, yeah. yeah their, their number is much higher. Although it's interesting to note that even on their estimates of casualties, which are clearly obviously for propagandistic purposes, they still put an asterisk next to it that says, estimate. <laughs> so. Okay, so so your view is that that the, the Ukrainians are doing well because I think of two things, right? One is that Ukrainians have or at least this is my view, practically infinitely deep pockets. Because as long as they seem likely, to, like there's a real chance that they can can win, NATO will keep resupplying um, hard material. And there's sort of enough Ukrainian men that are skilled enough to be able to use this stuff that they're not going to run out of money. They're not going to run out of bullets or javelins or stingers. Uh, right. That stuff's uh, uh, going to keep getting shipped in. It, Unless it the Russians goes, can shut it down, but you think the Russians, right. their, their airstrikes in the West, close to the the air bases there by Lviv and stuff, where they're sort of claiming to shut down caches, it's not really working. It seems unlikely to me that the Russians would be able to shut down a pipeline of things coming through, partly because I've seen images of stingers sort of in the, in the boot of a car, <laughs> yeah. you know, coming through with humanitarian aid. And, uh, and more and more missile systems are being sent to Ukraine because Ukraine's big PR campaign over the last couple of weeks has been close the skies, has been the, the thing that they've settled on. And they first said, do a no-fly zone. And then, you know, the the, the NATO West was wasn't really keen on that. So then they said, okay, how about you send us fighter jets? And the Americans said, mm, no, we don't want to do that. So now they've settled on, and this seems to be what everyone uh, on the pro-Ukraine side is happy with, send us. Uh, Soviet anti-missile systems that we know yeah. how to use. Uh, yeah. And that does seem to be happening now. I think Slovakia is probably going to send them their uh, anti-aircraft anti systems. Yeah. And that, and, that, and that can make a huge difference. Okay. So, so the Ukrainians are in the ascendancy because they've kind of got infinitely deep pockets. The Russians, although they've only deployed uh, 10%, 15% of their standing army can't really deploy more because they need to keep the rest on the borders as we discussed last time 
Uh, they don't have much more sort of quality equipment and troops to 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 move around. Um, so they don't have infinitely deep pockets. Uh, another way to put it is politically, this is an optional war versus an existential war. Traditionally, but Ukraine Ukraine is a, is a fully mobilized society, whereas Russia is. is not. Ukraine is fighting for its life. Russia is like, this is a border war. They could win, they could lose. It's not really going to threaten them either way. Uh, so, you know, the, the standard political thought is in an optional war, you have to win every battle. Uh, in, an, in, in an existential war, you only need to win one. Uh, Russia has to win every time. Ukraine only has to win one time. If you, and and I, my view is that that's right, um, and and that's part of the reason that I think it's fifty fifty. Has so that's the Ukrainians fifty <laughs> percent. Right. So can I can I can I add the second part, which is how I get to the seventy? Go for it. This is, I think that one of the big differences is the things that are always hard to quantify in conflicts, and those are morale and sort of general efficiency. So on those points, like I said, it's very difficult to tell exactly what's going on, but it does seem like, considering that there's been a large number of, for example, abandoned Russian vehicles, there's a lot of Russian troops who are kind of thinking to themselves, uh, I'll out. Uh, nah. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is not worth whatever it's supposed to be worth. Can uh, you give me a sense from tracking Spion Corp? What? Give me. We're we're now four weeks in, right? Can you give yeah. me like week four versus week three? Versus, which is the week in which you see the most of that, and which is the week you see the least of that? So I can't remember the exact numbers, but I saw he posted a graph recently, and it seemed to be a fairly linear line actually so it's getting worse and worse well no no it's 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 about like the losses are about the same through the whole conflict okay it's flat line it's not it's not yeah. really changing yeah 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 so basically so so it was linear as in he, he every time he added a new one to the cumulative total he he would uh, it, it goes up right so so it's a, like a straight line up it's not like an exponential curve up or down yeah. um Although there do seem to be more captured vehicles in the early stages rather than the later stages now, because right. presumably See, that, everyone that, who had that fits my impression. Now uh, it's more, yeah. Now it's more destroyed stuff. Which... Yes, that fits my impression. <laughs> my impression is that this, the, the the abandonment stuff, which is a sign of 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 not particularly feisty fighters. You see, here's my thing. I say that in the first week and two of the war, you've got a bit of a kissing cousins problem. It's awkward. It's gross. Uh, you know, these are these are on both sides. A lot of the soldiers are pretty racist. Did you have to use that analogy. <laughs> yes, dude. This is fratricide. This is you know, this is Rus versus Rus, Kievan Rus versus Ruski Rus, Moscovite Rus. Uh, that is how most Ukrainians and and Russians think about it. No, sure, it. but I would have preferred fratricide to kissing cousins. <laughs> well, the point is, if you if you get into the sort of French literature of the 17th century, that you know, let's not. <laughs> Well, I think we should, um, because I think the warning is the, the kind of ginger, the gingerly entrance of a lot of Russian soldiers into this thing um, might very well be the other side of a pendulum swing to, uh, you know, the thought is kissing cousins, kissing cousins starts out awkward and it ends the worst. That that there is nothing as, as, as relentless and sadomasochistic and 
tireless as as a family feud. Choleric would be the medieval word. Uh, today we might say rabbit. Uh, truly like a dog that's got its teeth clenched and you know, even if you put a, a poker up its bum, it won't release. Sort of a terrible thing. And I worry about that. I do worry about that because I, you know, I see I see scenarios in which this war is still going kind of this time next year, kind of a thing. Um, that's a possibility for sure. And 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 that's the grizzly. That's the grizzly grizzly. Um, so, so okay. Russian morale. Here's an anecdote. Today, this morning, I think the biggest uh, thing on Twitter that I saw doing the rounds uh, was a video, an audio clip of a Russian soldier phoning home from, I think, around Kherson, close to Mikhailayev, there in the south, where the Ukrainians have been doing the best, and. You know, some of the English speakers say that he's phoning his dad. Some of the English speakers say that he's on the phone speaking to his commander. There's this sort of CNN talking point about how the Russian communications lines are so bad that they that they can't use radio, so they have to use cell phones, and that's very easy for the Ukrainians to tap because it's uncoded. Whatever the case is, I you know I find the, the sample of the clip, and he says, you know, it's so terrible. There's only one tent. He's speaking in Russian. Uh, there's only one tent. Uh, we're we're sleeping in the trenches. Fifty percent of us have frostbite. Find the full clip, uh, you know. Hello, Viktorovich. Uh, why is he greeting a person by his patronymic? That is pretty weird to start with. Uh, there's not a word wasted in the conversation. They never misunderstand each other. They never can't hear each other. The signal's perfect, and in fact, they never pause. You know, Nicholas is a professional, and I, as a professional, sometimes are forced to look back over what we say and what we do. And it's, in my opinion, actually quite unlikely for people to have a perfectly efficient conversation. There is usually a bit of repetition and redundancy. This conversation sort of races through all of the terrible talking points. 50% of us have frostbite. There's there's no stove. Uh, we've run out of munitions. Uh, friendly fire has caused both an airplane to be knocked out of the sky and for us to be bombed by our own uh, and so on down the line. This audio clip gets... I think by the time I saw it, sort of 600,000 views on Twitter. Uh, three hours later, I see on CNN uh, uh, the, the the headline, U.S. intelligence uh, says that some Russians are, are losing limbs as a result of frostbite or something. Uh, and it's not clear I think, if they're using I think that became, I think, I think that report came before the clip started doing the rounds. Definitely not. So this is, are you Definitely. sure? Definitely. Because yes. I, because because my understanding I, is that people readily picked up on the clip uh, because of the other way around. But you, you may be right. No, no, did I did the, the 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 that clip came out early this morning. The CNN story came out a couple of hours ago. Um, so here's the problem. If you just look at the temperatures in Ukraine for the last week, the maximum cold that it's got is minus eight. And pretty much every night, it's either been above freezing or it's been around minus one, minus two. It's pretty difficult to get serious frostbite in those conditions uh, if you're not drunk. Like if you're properly drunk and you pass out in the snow, you can get well. frostbite. Uh, the other problem is that this guy names his commanding officer and insults him. 
calls him a pretty gross name. Now, you've got to try and imagine the soldier. The soldier is saying, we're stuck in the barracks. If we go five meters to the left, we're being shot down by Ukrainians. If we stray any other way, we get shot down by friendly fire. Like, what's the thought? He's in the trench. He says there's no tent, so we're all sleeping in the trench. Like, he's in the trench just shouting out his commanding officer's name and saying he's a, he's a douchebag. That seems very unlikely to me. So maybe he's, like, going to the toilet. Do you think the latrines are, like, a lonely and quiet place? Where is this guy finding a lonely and quiet place where he's so confident that he would name his commanding officer and insult him? And beyond that... How, if he's talking on a cell phone, like, is he very stupid? Does he not realize that the Ukrainians will probably hear it? If they have heard it, if this is a real story, my sort of central question is, do you think there's any chance this person is still alive? Like, how do you think the Russian court system works? Um, I invite you to go check it out. And once you've seen how the Russian court system works, how do you think their martial courts work? Do you think a commanding officer in the Russian army would have any hesitation in shooting between the eyeballs some infantry soldier who's caught uh, 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 insulting so, his, his, his commanding officer by name and saying all of this stuff? Personally, so let me, I don't. Let me, say, Other people, let me finish my story. Other people yeah. have their own ideas about how the Russian army works. I might be too impressed by my experience of living in Russia, of speaking people, speaking with people that are actually serving in the Russian army, by speaking with people that have uh, endured the Soviet Union, I might live under the same kind of spooky fear uh, as, as some substratum uh, of, 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 of the Russian public who, who really thinks uh, that it's important to choose your words carefully uh, especially if you're close to the coalface of government violence, because there will not be much second thought when it comes to exterminating you uh, for embarrassing the public. In a country where it's 15 years jail sentence, theoretically, for saying for war. calling it a, a war, right. Okay, so that's my point of view. And other people are welcome to have the point of view that either they're toothless or this dude is so stupid or, or, or. And they can then also deal with the facts about the climate and, and however they deal with that. But let me finish with this point. I follow where I get most of my data from is the Institute for the Study of War, which is an American think tank, which seems pretty legitimate. They update their maps. No, I, I uh, also follow them as well. Yeah. Pretty regularly. I, I like reading their commentary. They're clearly more on the Ukraine side, but I think that they I think that they uh, they, they do uh, definitely make an effort to be dispassionate. They're making an effort, and and I and I respect them. And their analysis is, you know, their big talking point, which has made its way through the uh, CNN universe and so on, is that the Russians have got this terrible problem where they might not have a central organizing commander. Yeah. Um, at the same, on the same day, I see in Sky News a British officer saying, you know. Uh, intelligence officer saying, you know, the amazing thing about uh, the Ukrainian army is that they don't have a central uh, intelligence officer. They don't have a central organizing officer. They've got each little sub-command unit is kind of left to do its own thing. And the terrible thing about the Russians is it's all top-down, uh, centrally organized, no room for, 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 for uh, the different units on the ground to sort of make their own decisions. Now, 
you know, it could be the case that the Russian army is in such a state of disarray that uh, every criticism is correct. It's too centrally controlled. It's too decentralized. It's too full of artillery. It doesn't have enough artillery. It's too full of like hardened soldiers who can remember the Chechen war and therefore are drudges and will happily go, you know, will not happily, unhappily will go day after day after day forward into the meat grinder. It's too full of people that are kind of sensitive and want to be strategic. And if it doesn't all work out, they'd like to run away. It might very well be the case that Russia is on the, on the brink of collapse, which is why I say it's 50, 50. Um, I, I think that there is really a lot of evidence to suggest that this is a completely chaotic, badly organized, ridiculous, uh, just from a military perspective, never mind a moral perspective kind of army. But I also think it might be the case that something else is going on. And my interpretation of things is this, that uh, the Russian army has extended itself basically in terms of the troops that have been deployed to the maximum. Uh, so Khernikiv, which is Khernikiv, which is uh, Chornikiv, which is uh, northeast of Kiev, uh, is uh, besieged, and west of that, there's a, a huge pocket outside of the city that is also being encircled, where there are Ukrainian soldiers. Sumy has been besieged, which is you know if you're going from Kiev as like twelve o'clock, around the clock to like two o'clock, Sumy's at two o'clock. That's being besieged. And outside of Sumy, there's a separate pocket, again, not in a city of Ukrainian forces that are besieged, according to the Institute for the Study of War. Then Kharkiv has been circumvented. Uh, the Russians are, I don't know what they're doing in that sort of uh, 2.30 to 3 o'clock part of the clock, maybe 2, two o'clock part of the clock. Uh, maybe they're... For you know, there's there's a there's conflicting reports about whether they've taken all of Lugansk uh, or not. Um, how are things going there? I I, I, I think yeah, the there's East reason... is the most difficult, uh, uh, bad part of the war, and yeah. it's also probably the most meat grindery of all of the fronts. Yeah, uh, and 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 then if you if you wheel around to like four o'clock, you're getting around Mariupol. Mariupol, Mariupol, um, and there you get conflicting reports. You know, in some versions, it goes pretty deep between Mariupol and uh, and and where the Ukrainian uh, forces reintroduced. In other in other versions, uh, it's actually pretty close. There's a pretty thin Russian line besieging Mariupol. Certainly, it seems like Mariupol is being squeezed further and further. Uh, but so you've got three. Uh, Chernihiv, Sumy, Mariupol, you know, add their populations together, 1.2 million with the pockets around them and, and the forces inside of them. Who knows how many soldiers, maybe 10,000, maybe 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers, probably somewhere in between, probably halfway, that are impossible to resupply because there's no way to air resupply them. There's no naval way to resupply them. Uh, you keep going around Kherson, Mikolaev, Nikolaev in between this. Uh, Wait, is there uh, really a Nikolaev? Nikolaev is in between Mikolaev and Kherson. I hadn't noticed it. <laughs> <laughs> there, this is like a, this is like a, 
uh, a zone where the Ukrainians have done very well. They've kind of driven, you know, there was like maybe you're going to, maybe the Russian Federation is going to surround uh, Mikolaev and be able to drive down to Odessa and support that with an amphibian attack or, or something like that. That has not happened at all. They've been totally driven back uh, basically to Kherson. Okay. To me, this is the full extent. And things for the last seven, you know, uh, day, we're on day 29, 30, 31, something like that. From about day 20 29, to, I think we're on. 29. From day like 18 to 24, 25, the Russians had like another wave of solid advances. Uh, and since then, for the last six, seven days, they've been pretty static, kind of resupplying. Uh, on this version, the Russians are like five fingers, you know, each finger poking at a big city. Obviously, the biggest city that I haven't mentioned is Kiev, then Chernihiv, then Sumy, then uh, whatever's going around Luhansk, Donetsk, uh, confusing Mariupol, and then uh, between Kherson and Mikolaev. Five, six fingers. And, you know, if I remember the way that the little bit of military tactics that I learned at university works like one of Napoleon's great achievements is that, you know, invading Austria and also dealing with Prussia, he'd have smaller forces than the total army that he was attacking, but he would manage to, to split the army that he was attacking by making feints, by sort of splitting a bit right. of his march, army. And... March, march divided, fight concentrated. There we go. Uh, so that you, you split the enemy forces and you, even though you've got less overall forces, can concentrate all your forces against half their forces, and then you've got superiority of numbers, or at least parity of numbers, and then that strategy has put you in a position where battle tactics can get you ahead. And the Ukrainians have good reason to think that battle tactics in the in the field of play is going to get them ahead. So they just need the strategy to split the Russian army. Hold on. The Russian army split itself. It split itself six ways. It's besieging all these different cities at the same time. It's, it's going on the clock of Russia from like 11 o'clock at Kiev all the way around the clock to like 7 o'clock there at, at uh, Mikolaev, it, it, it's as if the Russians have embraced the most hubristic approach. They have fanned their army around uh, three quarters of the sundial. Uh, this is this is what Napoleon would dream of. Uh, this is truly hubristic army tactics. And yet, and yet, and yet, it's like five fingers that have been spread out. If they can hold it, if they can take Mariupol, finish it up, all of not all of those troops. Some are going to have to stay and deal with the insurrectionary partisan kind of stuff. But 80% of those troops will be able to go to the next theater and help support that. And once they clear that up, 70% of the troops can go and help support that. And the stuff in the south is actually more messy. The stuff in the north, I think, is the biggest missing picture. The pockets, according to the, 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 the study for war, the pockets around Sumy, there's pockets around Khernikiv, uh, the two pockets around Khernikiv uh, could hold significant numbers of Ukrainian troops that cannot be resupplied. Their bellies can be empty or near empty. Their barrels can be empty so, or near empty. You challenge them a little bit. And if you push them over, then you, I mean, the greatest victory for Russia would be able to encircle troops to such a point that, and deplete their ammunition that they surrender. Because if you can get 10,000 prisoners of war marching right. through Ukraine, to Russia, then the whole thing's over. That's the kind of tactical, you know, major 
bad look victory that the Russians are looking for uh, that can force the Ukrainians to the negotiating table in a way that they like. On the flip side, so if the I... Russians break one finger, yeah. is my theory. If they lose in Mariupol, if, if there's some embarrassing thing there, if there's some embarrassing thing, if they lose Kherson, if they get uh, driven out of the, if the if the pocket in Sumi managed to drive its way through back to the main force, same thing with Khanakib. I think if they if if any one of those splayed fingers gets broken, the Russians would take months and months and months to heal it, and in the meanwhile, the other fingers would have to stretch themselves even further to try and cover the space to stop the Ukrainians from forming a bit of a fist. Uh, and 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 so you know the prudent move either that's the situation that leads us into the war continuing next year, or uh, that's the situation that leads Putin to go to the negotiating table. Uh, cap in hand, begging for whatever, and and trying to find a way to sell that back to the Russian people as a, as a victory. So that's why I think it's 50-50, because I think there are six fronts, and any decisive victory on one of those fronts would win it or lose it for either side. And to go back one step to the political equation, okay, Russia's an optional war, Ukraine's an existential war. Why does the usual rule not hold for the optional war fighter if you lose once, that's it? I think it's also true for the Ukrainians not in a morale sense, just in a basic um, military sense, that if the Russians can start gathering that fist, uh, they will be devastating. Because right now, it seems to me that on every front, it's pretty evenly matched in numbers, and it's pretty evenly matched in material. But if one of those fronts breaks, that means the next front can have twice as much numbers for one side or the other side. Now, this is very rough and intuitive. So, Nicholas, tell me why I'm being a dummy. I'm just thinking out loud. So, so yeah, no, I, I, look, I'm also coming from a similar place of dumminess. So <laughs> don't, uh, don't, don't be too hard on yourself. But here's, I think, a slightly different interpretation. I think there is definitely something to what you're saying there. But this interpretation is that the Russians are, a lot of those areas on those maps that are sort of shaded as under their control are not nah. fully under their control because nah. it's like, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of, yeah, there's, 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 there's terrorists the who are very irritated with the fact that they've been <laughs> right. invaded. And, and, and the Ukrainian army has, has uh, uh, two sort of distinct chunks, right? It's got the, um, the professional formal troops who are the backbone, and then it's got the territorial defense units who consist of everything from the remnants of those militias that fought in the 2014 war to the guys who showed up in their blue jeans at the start of this part of the conflict, right? Yeah. Now, a lot of the footage that's actually come out and a lot of the reason to think that the Russians have had bad supply problems is because the Ukrainians have very deliberately tried to avoid a major battle because they do have this problem that when it comes to sheer massed firepower, they just aren't able to match. <laughs> because they don't have enough artillery, they don't have enough tanks, etc. You know, most of their tanks are like T-72s and T-64s, which are garbage. Um, although the Russians have used a surprising number of those tanks as well, which kind of shocked everyone, because everyone thought it was going to be T-90s and T-80s all the way. Uh, and they have used some, and that some of those have been knocked out. But, you know, they've used a lot of older tanks. Anyway. Dude, you mustn't, so, just please, please, if I can give you a cultural insight, you mustn't yeah. underestimate the Russian willingness to push men through the meat grind. <laughs> no, 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 fair enough, right? But which CNN the, does all the, the time. They're like, oh, Russians are so evil. Putin's so terrible. And then they think that the 
that the willingness to push men through the meat grinder and be like, you know what, we've got cheap stuff, we've got cheap men that aren't that great, let's push them through. If that those that survive maybe can graduate to using the nice tax. Like this is a bloodletting session for them. In so, my so interpretation. Here's, yeah, here's here's an alternative view of the, the five finger, six fingers thing. Yeah. Like the invasion of Finland, they instead of pursuing much more focused military objectives, they spread themselves out too thin. Mm-hmm. And now they're try- they're failing to consolidate in all of these places, which has forced them to stop. Because on every siege and every major battlefront that they've got, they're getting attacked on their supply lines. They're getting harassed by these territorial defense units, and they're having to send dudes in to just get mowed down by the professional Ukrainian troops, who are in a lot of places in all wars for all armies. It's much easier to defend than it is to attack. Um, even when, you know, firepower kind of levels that a bit, right? That's kind of what tanks and firepower for. Okay, but we kind of agree about this, right? So I'm not saying that this was a great strategy. I'm saying that this is a strategy they've extended themselves to the point where, like, I believe that if the Russians had been strategic about this, firstly, they wouldn't have engaged in the war. Now they would have done it next winter, like I said, would make sense, because in between now and then they might have been able to get a diplomatic settlement on their legitimate demands. And secondly, if they had gone about it, they wouldn't go about it this way. They, this is that you know they've turned the Ukrainians into Napoleon uh, through their hubris. They've stretched themselves as much as they could. The the, the 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 question is, have they stretched themselves too far or not? In terms of the supply lines, because they're around the clock and they command the sea, they command the Russian coast border, and they command the Belarusian border. It's pretty difficult to to so to do too much disruption of the basic supply lines. And in terms of air power. The Ukrainian, uh, you know, ability to frustrate Russian air superiority seems to me the most overstated thing. Like the, the amount of drone footage I've seen of, of Russian columns being taken out is 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 pretty limited relative to the scope of this theater of war. They only had um, 20 Bayraktar drones. Uh, I mean, Ukraine had yeah. about 100 fighter jets and 20 Bayraktar drones. No, so um, no, dude. No, no, don't don't get me wrong. I think that the Ukrainians are fighting like boers. Like I think they're sort of making every bullet <laughs> count, and and it's amazing. I'm just, I just think that it, they are like the boers fighting the British, um, uh, even though maybe soldier for soldier they're better. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I get that they're point. They're fighting at home. Um, yeah. they don't, they they don't quite have enough so, unless the Russians have overextended themselves. So I mean. What I'm trying to say is my thesis is that the Russians might very well have overextended themselves, but it's going to be a matter of a roll of the dice. It's like uh, that remains to be seen. Um, And if they haven't, it's going to be pretty devastating when they consolidate uh, because they'll be doing so. They won't be, like I said, they won't be able to take all their troops, but they will be because some of them are going to have to deal with the partisans and the guerrillas trying to disrupt the supply lines ongoingly and so on. But they will be able to take a huge portion of those troops, and so and we're, that we're, we're just very, seems to be, especially right. the pockets around Sumy and Khenekiv. That seems to be like the untold story. I, I, I have got a mind for the Ukrainian soldiers that do not have urban cover in urban environments. Uh, Sumy, Khenekiv, Mikhailov, uh, Mariupol. Soldiers are in an. Are in, a, are in a relatively safer position because as far as I can tell, Mariupol, there has been some pretty devastating shelling, um, you know, targeting a maternity yeah, it's wall. It's very hard to attack a, an urban area. Just but it's very hard to attack an urban area. 
those pockets that are stranded more or less in the open battlefield, like it just seems so a matter of time before they all surrender or they're all destroyed. And so to me, the biggest question is how many Ukrainian troops are there? If it's 20,000, all 20,000 can be killed. Right, so this, is, this is the point survive. I was trying to get but to. If it's not clear that those units... get killed. Yeah. It's not clear that those units... If and we firstly we don't know, like you said, we don't actually know how many are in those pockets. But it's not clear how how surrounded they are. And and one of the reasons I say not is that there's footage, for example, of Ukrainian territorial troops. So in other words, not the not the professional good ones, um, running around some of those places with the the end laws and javelins and stuff that have just been coming in now. In other words, with the fresh kit, which suggests that they're getting something from from uh, the western border even quite far out but once again that's you know it's anecdotal and and we don't really know um so we've gone long and i i just want to cap what my sort of view here is i think you know in my understanding of military history almost always the uh and and notwithstanding the american quote about how quantity is a quality all of its own but i generally think that the army which has better quality in terms of tactics and morale will usually win not always but most of the time you could even say 70 percent of the time and i think that while i pro i thought that when the war would begun that the russians were more disciplined more organized and had higher morale than they do and that the ukrainians were less um I think the war has demonstrated that the Ukrainians are actually at least in, in, in possibly tactics and definitely morale of the superior side. And that's why I currently favor them to, to, to win the conflict. Obviously, yeah, we'll see. Because, because this is exactly where I think we disagree. My sense, and it is culturally inflected, and it comes back to my recommendation of last week, or no, it's my recommendation of the episode. Two weeks ago. Because I was too... Oh, right. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes, the hidden episode. It's our second the hidden, hidden episode. episode <laughs> yeah, it's our second ever hidden episode. Anyway, I'll tell you what my recommendation was. Uh, George Orwell's uh, review of Mein Kampf, which he wrote let, while let, the Nazis Yeah, let me were. put that the recommendation for this week. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, George Orwell's review of Mein Kampf, uh, which he wrote during World War II, while Nazis were trying to bomb George Orwell and everyone else in London. Um, is a remarkable effort. And it's a good thing to read for anyone who's trying to keep a cool head and a human heart uh, pumping mm. during war. One of the things that he noticed is that the promise of happiness uh, is, is made... You know, I think he put it like, you know, capitalism promises happiness tomorrow. No, capitalism promise, promises happiness for everyone today. You know, later today. today. Yeah. Socialism, Socialism is for the future is tomorrow. We'll get it. We'll get it. You know, just sacrifice now. We'll get it. We'll get happiness. It's like fascism, at least the way Hitler was doing it, uh, was, you know, what was the winning line from Mein Kampf? You know, you can, you can say Hitler wasn't a great writer, but he was. Um, it's better to, I'm going to get this wrong. It's better to end uh, in, in sort of a proud act of struggle than to struggle without end. Right. Shame. It's a it's a it's a re um, a repackaging of I think it's an Aesop's fable idea that it's better to live one day as a lion than a hundred years as a sheep. Yeah. And 
and the emotional thought is that that suffering is also a, a, a great sell. And I've got a friend who is, a, is, a, is an amazing musician, PhD musician, classical musician, who was writing, me, writing to me today, sort of, I've had this thought for very long, but it is nice to have someone volunteer it. Um, he had been listening to various anthems uh, from European countries, including Eastern European countries, right? And he was amazed at just how how chest beating and brave and bum 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 off we go kind of jolly so many of these anthems are and not just national anthems war anthems he was going through the war songs the sort of 300 year old war songs the 200 year old songs uh he's he's an archival kind of student of music he's just time and time and time and time again the russian music was completely different it's funeral marches those guys do funeral marches into war. Dude, there's a, there's a great, and there's a great been scene. doing it for centuries. There's a great scene from uh, a Russian movie that was made about the Civil War, and it's about the whites and the reds fighting each other. And I think it came out like 10 years ago or something. Um, and there's a nun on the white side, and she gets shot by the communists during the battle while she's attending to the wounded. And immediately their blood just comes up and they start playing music on the drums and they just go forward into death of the machine guns. And it's exactly mm. that kind of sentiment, you know, the funeral march. Yeah. I mean, the only people who can write funeral marches like the Russians are actually the Poles. Um, yes. Whose, whose anthem, let's be, uh, we should remind you, it's English title is uh, uh, Poland is not yet lost. <laughs> It really is. And Chopin's, you know, I mean, there's a reason Star Wars is like all Russian and Polish songs on the on the on the Empire side, on Darth Vader's side. And I think that uh there's something beautiful about it. I think there's something horrific about it. It might very well be the case that history's moved on. That, you know, YouTube and Adidas Takis and McDonald's have kind of eroded the Russian spirit to the point where truths that held, you know basically between uh, them throwing off the, the the yoke of the Mongol horde, you know, this, this great decolonization movement that Russia, that Moscovite Russia. The, the Tatar Moscovite, yoke. The reason Moscovite Russia, you know, if you want to get into it, thinks it's better than Ukraine. The reason the, reason the Russians think they're better than Ukrainians. Because they got rid of the Mongols while the Ukrainians didn't. <laughs> yes. They were the best decolonizers. You know, decolonization, let me tell you, it's not a South African idea and it's not original and it's flippant poisonous. But it does, it does, it has descriptive power, in my opinion. Uh, it, it certainly has had descriptive power. Maybe that descriptive power is gone. But my, my reading on Russian morale is like my reading of the mood on the Moscow subway. Uh, it's just different. If you see no smiles on the Moscow subway, it's probably safe to say everyone's in a good mood. And that's not true. <laughs> Dude, that is so Russian. <laughs> okay, we're very over time now. So that's I'm going to put your, I've, I've your recommendation. recommendation. Yeah, your recommendation is George Orwell's review of Mein Kampf. I'm just going to recommend, um, I thought, you know, you can read about that Japanese doomsday cult, but we'll save that for another time. I'm going to recommend uh, the Oryxpian Corp equipment list, which is interesting to look at, even if you don't buy it. Um, it's just an interesting data point in the fog of war.
And uh, anyway, with that, you get different data points. Get to get, if you if, yeah. you if all your data points agree, then you're making a mistake. Right. Um, and with that, uh, I bid you all a farewell and hope that you keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, grr.